Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Section 65 of Village by Charlotte Bronte. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Leanne Fortune. Section 65. The door opened. His little treasure came in. She was dressed, so to speak, in evening beauty. That animation which sometimes comes with the close of day warmed her eye and cheek. A tinge of summer crimson heightened her complexion. Her curls fell full and long on her lily neck. Her white dress suited the heat of June. Thinking me alone, she had brought in her hand the letter just written. Brought it folded but unsealed. I was to read it. When she saw her father... Her tripping step faltered a little, paused a moment. The colour in her cheek flowed rosy over her whole face. Polly, said Monsieur de Bassompierre in a low voice, with a grave smile, do you blush at seeing Papa? That is something new. I don't blush. I never do blush, affirmed she, while another eddy from the heart sent up its scarlet. But I thought you were in the dining room and I wanted Lucy. You thought I was with John Graham Breton, I suppose. But he has just been called out. He will be back soon, Polly. He can post your letter for you. It will save Matthew a course, as he calls it. I don't post letters, said she rather pettishly. What do you do with them, then? Come here and tell me. Both her mind and gesture seemed to hesitate a second to say, Shall I come? But she approached. How long is it since you became a letter writer, Polly? It only seems yesterday when you were at your pothooks, labouring away absolutely with both hands at the pen. Papa, they are not letters to send to the post in your letter bag. They are only notes which I give now and then into the person's hands, just to satisfy. The person? That means Miss Snow, I suppose. No, Papa, not Lucy. Who then? Perhaps Mrs. Breton? No, Papa, not Mrs. Breton. Who then, my little daughter? Tell Papa the truth. Oh, Papa, she cried with earnestness. I will, I will tell you the truth, all the truth. I am glad to tell you, glad, though I tremble. She did tremble, growing excitement, kindling feeling, and also gathering courage, shook her. I hate to hide my actions from you, Papa. I fear you and love you above everything but God. Read the letter. Look at the address. She laid it on his knee. He took it up and read it through. 
his hand shaking, his eyes glistening meantime. He refolded it and viewed the writer with a strange, tender, mournful amaze. Can she write so? The little thing that stood at my knee but yesterday? Can she feel so? Papa, is it wrong? Does it pain you? There is nothing wrong in it, my innocent little Mary, but it pains me. But Papa, listen, you shall not be pained by me. I would give up everything, almost, correcting herself. I would die rather than make you unhappy. That would be too wicked, she shuddered. Does the letter not please you? Must it not go? Must it be torn? It shall, for your sake, if you order it. I order nothing. Order something, Papa. Express your wish. Only don't hurt, don't grieve, Graham. I cannot, cannot bear that. I love you, Papa, but I love Graham too, because, because it is impossible to help it. This splendid Graham is a young scamp, Polly. That is my present notion of him. It will surprise you to hear that for my part. I do not love him one whit. Ah, years ago I saw something in that lad's eye I never quite fathomed, something his mother has not, a depth which warned a man not to wade into that stream too far. Now suddenly I find myself taken over the crown of the head. Papa, you don't. You have not fallen in. You are safe on the bank. You can do as you please. Your power is despotic. You can shut me up in a convent and break Graham's heart tomorrow if you choose to be so cruel. Now, autocrat, now, Tsar, will you do this? Off with him to Siberia, red whiskers and all. I say I don't like him, Polly, and I wonder that you should. Papa, said she, do you know you are very naughty? I never saw you look so disagreeable, so unjust, so almost vindictive before. There is an expression in your face which does not belong to you. Off with him, pursued Mr. Home, who certainly did look sorely crossed and annoyed, even a little bitter. But I suppose if he went, Polly would pack a bundle and run after him. Her heart is fairly won, won and weaned from her old father. Papa, I say it is naughty. It is decidedly wrong to talk in that way. I am not weaned from you and no human being and no mortal influence can win me. Be married, Polly, espouse the red whiskers, cease to be a daughter, go and be a wife. Red whiskers, I wonder what you mean, Papa. You should take care of prejudice. You sometimes say to me that all the Scotch, your countrymen, are the victims of prejudice. It is proved now, I think, when no distinction is to be made between red and deep nut brown. Leave the prejudiced old Scotchman. Go away. She stood looking at him a minute. She wanted to show firmness, superiority to taunts. Knowing her father's character, guessing his few foibles, she had expected the sort of scene which was now transpiring. It did not take her by surprise, and she desired to let it pass with dignity, reliant upon reaction. Her dignity stood her in no stead. Suddenly, her soul melted in her eyes. She fell on his neck. I won't leave you, Papa. I'll never leave you. I won't pain you. I'll never pain you, was her cry. My lamb, my treasure, murmured the loving, though rugged sire. 
He said no more for the moment. Indeed, those two words were hoarse. The room was now darkening. I heard a movement, a step without. Thinking it might be a servant coming with candles, I gently opened to prevent intrusion. In the anteroom stood no servant. A tall gentleman was placing his hat on the table, drawing off his glove slowly, lingering, waiting, it seemed to me. He called me neither by sign nor word, yet his eye said, Lucy, come here, and I went. Over his face a smile flowed while he looked down on me. No temper, save his own, would have expressed by a smile the sort of agitation which now fevered him. Monsieur de Bassompierre is there, is he not? he inquired, pointing to the library. Yes. He noticed me at dinner? He understood me? Yes, Graham. I am brought up for judgment, then, and so is she. Mr. Home, we now and always continue to term him Mr. Home, at times, is talking to his daughter. Ha! These are sharp moments, Lucy. He was quite stirred up. His young hand trembled. A vital, I was going to write, mortal, but such words ill apply to one all living like him. A vital suspense now held, now hurried his breath. In all this trouble, his smile never faded. Is he very angry, Lucy? She is very faithful, Graham. What will be done unto me? Graham, your star must be fortunate. Must it, kind prophet, so cheered I should be a faint heart indeed to quail. I think I find all women faithful, Lucy. I ought to love them, and I do. My mother is good, she is divine, and you are true as steel, are you not? Yes, Graham. Then give me thy hand, my little god-sister. It is a friendly little hand to me, and always has been. And now for the great venture, God be with the right. Lucy, say Amen. He turned and waited till I said Amen, which I did to please him. The old charm, in doing as he bid me, came back. I wished him success, and successful I knew he would be. He was born victor, as some are born vanquished. Follow me, he said, and I followed him into Mr. Holmes' presence. Sir, he asked, what is my sentence? The father looked at him. The daughter kept her face hid. Well, Breton, said Mr. Holm, you have given me the usual reward of hospitality. I entertained you. You have taken my best. I was always glad to see you. You were glad to see the one precious thing I had. You spoke me fair, and meantime I will not say you robbed me, but I am bereaved, and what I have lost, you, it seems, have won. Sir, I cannot repent. Repent, not you. You triumph, no doubt. John Graham, you descended partly from a Highlander and a chief, and there is a trace of the Celt in all you look, speak, and think. You have his cunning and his charm. The red. Well, then, Polly, the fair. Hair. The tongue of guile and brain of wile are all come down by inheritance. Sir, I feel honest enough, said Graham, and a genuine English blush covered his face with its warm witness of sincerity. And yet, he added, 
I won't deny that in some respects you accuse me justly. In your presence I have always had a thought which I dared not show you. I did truly regard you as the possessor of the most valuable thing the world owns for me. I wished for it. I tried for it. Sir, I ask for it now. John, you ask much. Very much, sir. It must come from your generosity as a gift, from your justice, as a reward. I can never earn it. Eh, listen to the highland tongue, said Mr. Home. Look up, Polly. Answer this brawl wooer. Send him away. She looked up. She shyly glanced at her eager, handsome suitor. She gazed tenderly on her furrowed sire. Papa, I love you both, said she. I can take care of you both. I need not send Graham away. He can live here. He will be no inconvenience. She alleged with that simplicity of phraseology which at times was wont to make both her father and Graham smile. They smiled now. He will be a prodigious inconvenience to me, still persisted Mr. Home. I don't want him, Polly. He is too tall. He is in my way. Tell him to march. You will get used to him, Papa. He seemed exceedingly tall to me at first, like a tower when I looked up at him. But on the whole, I would rather not have him otherwise. I object to him altogether, Polly. I can do without a son-in-law. I should never have requested the best man in the land to stand to me in that relation. Dismiss this gentleman. But he has known you so long, Papa, and suits you so well. Suits me, forsooth. Yes, he has pretended to make my opinions and tastes his own. He has humoured me for good reasons. I think, Polly, you and I will bid him good-bye. Till tomorrow only. Shake hands with Graham, Papa. No, I think not. I am not friends with him. Don't think to coax me between you. Indeed, indeed, you are friends. Graham, stretch out your right hand. Papa, put out yours. Now, let them touch. Papa, don't be stiff. Close your fingers. Be pliant. There. But that is not a clasp. It is a grasp. Papa, you grasp like a vice. You crush Graham's hand to the bone. You hurt him. He must have hurt him, for he wore a massive ring, set round with brilliance, of which the sharp facets cut into Graham's flesh and drew blood. But pain only made Dr. John laugh, as anxiety had made him smile. Come with me into my study, at last said Mr. Home to the doctor. They went. Their intercourse was not long, but I suppose it was conclusive. The suitor had to undergo an interrogatory and a scrutiny on many things. Whether Dr. Breton was at times guileful in look and language or not, there was a sound foundation below. His answers, I understood afterwards, evinced both wisdom and integrity. He had managed his affairs well. He had struggled through entanglements. His fortunes were in the way of retrieval. He proved himself in a position to marry. Once more, the father and lover appeared in the library. Monsieur de Bassompierre shut the door. He pointed to his daughter. Take her, he said. Take her, John Breton, and may God deal with you as you deal with her. Not long after, perhaps a fortnight, I saw three persons. Count de Bassompierre his daughter, and Dr. Graham Breton, sitting on one seat, 
under a low-spreading and umbrageous tree in the grounds of the palace at Bois-le-Tang. They had come thither to enjoy a summer evening. Outside the magnificent gates, their carriage waited to take them home. The green sweeps of turf spread round them, quiet and dim. The palace rose at a distance, white as a crag on Pentelicus. The evening star shone above it. A forest of flowering shrubs embalmed the climate of this spot. The hour was still and sweet. The scene, but for this group, was solitary. Paulina sat between the two gentlemen. While they conversed, her little hands were busy at some work. I thought at first she was binding a nosegay. No, with the tiny pair of scissors glittering in her lap, she had severed spoils from each manly head beside her and was now occupied in plaiting together the grey lock and the golden wave. The plait woven, no silk thread being at hand to bind it, a tress of her own hair was made to serve that purpose. She tied it like a knot, prisoned it in a locket, and laid it on her heart. Now, said she, there is an amulet made, which has virtue to keep you two always friends. You can never quarrel so long as I wear this. An amulet was indeed made, a spell framed which rendered enmity impossible. She was become a bond to both, an influence over each, a mutual concord. From them she drew her happiness, and what she borrowed, she, with interest, gave back. Is there indeed such happiness on earth? I asked, as I watched the father, the daughter, the future husband, now united, all blessed and blessing. Yes, it is so. Without any colouring of romance, or any exaggeration of fancy, it is so. Some real lives do, for some certain days or years, actually anticipate the happiness of heaven, and I believe, if such perfect happiness is once felt by good people, to the wicked it never comes, its sweet effect is never wholly lost. Whatever trials follow, whatever pains of sickness or shades of death, the glory precedent still shines through, cheering the keen anguish and tinging the deep cloud. I will go farther. I do believe there are some human beings so born, so reared, so guided from a soft cradle to a calm and late grave, that no excessive suffering penetrates their lot, and no tempestuous blackness overcasts their journey. And often... These are not pampered, selfish beings, but nature's elect, harmonious and benign, men and women mild with charity, kind agents of God's kind attributes. Let me not delay the happy truth. Graham Breton and Paulina de Bassompierre were married, and such an agent did Dr. Breton prove. He did not with time degenerate, his faults decayed, his virtues ripened, he rose in intellectual refinement, he won in moral profit, all dregs filtered away, the clear wine settled bright and tranquil. Bright, too, was the destiny of his sweet wife. She kept her husband's love, she aided in his progress, of his happiness she was the cornerstone. This pair was blessed indeed, for years brought them, with great prosperity great goodness. 
then parted with open hand, yet wisely. Doubtless they knew crosses, disappointments, difficulties, but these were well borne. More than once, too, they had to look on him whose face flesh scarce can see and live. They had to pay their tribute to the King of Terrors. In the fullness of years, Monsieur de Bassompierre was taken. In ripe old age departed Louisa Breton. Once even there rose a cry in their halls, of Rachel weeping for her children, but others sprang healthy and blooming to replace the lost. Dr. Breton saw himself live again in a son who inherited his looks and his disposition. He had stately daughters, too, like himself. These children he reared with a suave, yet a firm hand. They grew up according to inheritance and nurture. In short, I do but speak the truth when I say that these two lives of Graham and Paulina were blessed, like that of Jacob's favoured son, with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies under. It was so, for God saw that it was good. End of section 65 Recording by Leanne Fortune Section 66 of Villette by Charlotte Bronte This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Leanne Fortune Section 66 But it is not so for all. What then? His will be done, as done it surely will be, whether we humble ourselves to resignation or not. The impulse of creation forwards it, the strength of powers, seen and unseen, has its fulfilment in charge. Proof of a life to come must be given. In fire and in blood, if needful, must that proof be written. In fire and in blood do we trace the record throughout nature. In fire and in blood does it cross our own experience. Sufferer, faint not through terror of this burning evidence. Tired wayfarer, gird up thy loins, look upward, march onward. Pilgrims and brother mourners, join in friendly company. Dark through the wilderness of this world stretches the way for most of us. Equal and steady be our tread, be our cross, our banner. For staff we have his promise, whose word is tried, whose way perfect, for present hope his providence, who gives the shield of salvation, whose gentleness makes great, for final home his bosom, who dwells in the height of heaven, for crowning prize a glory exceeding and eternal. Let us so run that we may obtain, let us endure hardness as good soldiers, let us finish our course and keep the faith, reliant in the issue to come off more than conquerors. Art thou not from everlasting mine, holy one? We shall not die. On a Thursday morning we were all assembled in class, waiting for the lesson of literature. The hour was come. We expected the master. The pupils of the first class sat very still. The cleanly written compositions prepared since the last lesson lay ready before them, neatly tied with ribbon, waiting to be gathered by the hand of the professor as he made his rapid round of the desks. The month was July, the morning fine. The glass door stood ajar. Through it, 
played a fresh breeze, and plants growing at the lintel waved, bent, looked in, seeming to whisper tidings. Monsieur Emmanuel was not always quite punctual. We scarcely wondered at his being a little late, but we wondered when the door at last opened, and instead of him, with his swiftness and his fire, there came quietly upon us the cautious Madame Beck. She approached Monsieur Paul's desk. She stood before it. She drew round her the light shawl covering her shoulders. Beginning to speak in low yet firm tones, and with a fixed gaze, she said, This morning there will be no lesson of literature. The second paragraph of her address followed, after about two minutes' pause. It is probable the lessons will be suspended for a week. I shall require at least that space of time to find an efficient substitute for Monsieur Emmanuel. Meanwhile, it shall be our study to fill the blanks usefully. Your professor, ladies, she went on, intends, if possible, duly to take leave of you. At the present moment, he has not leisure for that ceremony. He is preparing for a long voyage. The very sudden and urgent summons of duty calls him to a great distance. He has decided to leave Europe for an indefinite time. Perhaps he may tell you more himself. Ladies, instead of the usual lesson with Monsieur Emmanuel, you will, this morning, read English with Mademoiselle Lucy. She bent her head courteously, drew closer the folds of her shawl, and passed from the class. A great silence fell. Then a murmur went round the room. I believe some pupils wept. Some time elapsed. The noise, the whispering, the occasional sobbing increased. I became conscious of a relaxation of discipline, a sort of growing disorder, as if my girls felt that vigilance was withdrawn and that surveillance had virtually left the class. Habit and the sense of duty enabled me to rally quickly, to rise in my usual way, to speak in my usual turn, to enjoin, and finally to establish quiet. I made the English reading long and close. I kept them at it the whole morning. I remember feeling a sentiment of impatience towards the pupils who sobbed. Indeed, their emotion was not of much value. It was only an hysteric agitation. I told them so, unsparingly. I half ridiculed them. I was severe. The truth was, I could not do with their tears. All that gasping sound, I could not bear it. A rather weak-minded, low-spirited pupil kept it up when the others had done. Relentless necessity obliged and assisted me so to accost her that she dared not carry on the demonstration, that she was forced to conquer the convulsion. That girl would have had a right to hate me, except that, when school was over and her companions departing, I ordered her to stay, and when they were gone, I did what I had never done to one among them before, pressed her to my heart and kissed her cheek. But this impulse yielded to, I speedily put her out of the class, for upon that poignant strain she wept more bitterly than ever. I filled with occupation every minute of that day, and should have liked to sit up all night if I might have kept a candle burning. The night, however, proved a bad time, and left bad effects, preparing me ill for the next day's ordeal of insufferable gossip. Of course, this news fell under general discussion. Some little reserve had accompanied the first surprise. That soon wore off. Every mouth opened, every tongue wagged. Teachers, pupils, the very servants, 
mouthed the name of Emmanuel. He, whose connection with the school was contemporary with its commencement, thus suddenly to withdraw, all felt it strange. They talked so much, so long, so often, that out of the very multitude of their words and rumours grew at last some intelligence. About the third day I heard it said that he was to sail in a week, then that he was bound for the West Indies. I looked at Madame Beck's face and into her eyes for disproof or confirmation of this report. I perused her all over for information, but no part of her disclosed more than what was unperturbed and commonplace. This secession was an immense loss to her, she alleged. She did not know how she should fill up the vacancy. She was so used to her kinsman, he had become her right hand. What should she do without him? She had opposed the step, but Monsieur Paul had convinced her it was his duty. She said all this in public, in class, at the dinner table, speaking audibly to Zélie Saint-Pierre. Why was it his duty? I could have asked her that. I had impulses to take hold of her suddenly, as she calmly passed me in class, to stretch out my hand and grasp her fast, and say, Stop! Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Why is it his duty to go into banishment? But Madame always addressed some other teacher and never looked at me, never seemed conscious I could have a care in the question. The week wore on. Nothing more was said about Monsieur Emmanuel coming to bid us good-bye, and none seemed anxious for his coming. None questioned whether or not he would come. None betrayed torment lest he should depart silent and unseen. Incessantly did they talk, and never, in all their talk, touched on this vital point. As to Madame, she of course could see him and say to him as much as she pleased. What should she care whether or not he appeared in the schoolroom? The week consumed. We were told that he was going on such a day that his destination was Basseterre in Guadalupe. The business which called him abroad related to a friend's interests, not his own. I thought as much. Basseterre in Guadalupe. I had little sleep about this time, but whenever I did slumber, it followed infallibly that I was quickly roused with a start while the words Basseter, Guadalupe, seemed pronounced over my pillow, or ran athwart the darkness round and before me in zigzag characters of red or violet light. For what I felt, there was no help, and how could I help feeling? Monsieur Emmanuel had been very kind to me of late days. He had been growing hourly better and kinder. It was now a month since we had settled the theological difference, and in all that time there had been no quarrel, nor had our peace been the cold daughter of divorce. We had not lived aloof. He had come oftener. He had talked with me more than before. He had spent hours with me, with temper soothed, with eye content, with manner homelike and mild. Kind subjects of conversation had grown between us. He had inquired into my plans of life, and I had communicated them. The school project pleased him. He made me repeat it more than once, though he called it an Alnishar dream. The jar was over. The mutual understanding was settling and fixing. Feelings of union and hope 
made themselves profoundly felt in the heart. Affection and deep esteem and dawning trust had each fastened its bond. What quiet lessons I had about this time. No more taunts on my intellect. No more menaces of grating public shows. How sweetly, for the jealous jibe and the more jealous, half-passionate eulogy, was substituted a mute, indulgent help, a fond guidance and a tender forbearance which forgave but never praised. There were times when he would sit for many minutes and not speak at all, and when dusk or duty brought separation, he would leave with words like these. Il est doux, les repos. Il est précieux, les comme bonheur. One evening, not ten short days since, he joined me whilst walking in my alley. He took my hand. I looked up in his face. I thought he meant to arrest my attention. Bon petit ami, said he softly. Douce, consolatrice. But through his touch and with his words, a new feeling and a strange thought found a course. Could it be that he was becoming more than friend or brother? Did his look speak a kindness beyond fraternity or amity? His eloquent look had more to say. His hand drew me forward. His interpreting lips stirred. No, not now. Here into the twilight alley broke an interruption. It came dual and ominous. We faced two bodeful forms, a woman's and a priest's, Madame Beck and Père Silas. The aspect of the latter I shall never forget. On the first impulse it expressed a Jean-Jacques sensibility, stirred by the signs of affection, just surprised, then immediately darkened over it the jaundice of ecclesiastical jealousy. He spoke to me with unction. He looked on his pupil with sternness. As to Madame Beck, she, of course, saw nothing, nothing. Though her kinsman retained in her presence the hand of the heretic foreigner, not suffering withdrawal, but clasping it close and fast. Following these incidents, that sudden announcement of departure had struck me at first as incredible. Indeed, it was only frequent repetition, and the credence of the hundred and fifty minds round me which forced on me its full acceptance. As to that week of suspense, with its blank yet burning days, which brought from him no word of explanation, I remember, but I cannot describe its passage. The last day broke. Now would he visit us. Now he would come and speak his farewell, or he would vanish mute and be seen by us never more. This alternative seemed to be present in the mind of not a living creature in that school. All rose at the usual hour, all breakfasted as usual, all without reference to or apparent thought of their late professor, who took themselves with wanted phlegm to their ordinary duties. So oblivious was the house, so tame, so trained its proceedings, so inexpectant its aspect, I scarce knew how to breathe in an atmosphere thus stagnant, thus smothering. Would no one lend me a voice? Had no one a wish? No one a word? No one a prayer to which I could say, Amen? I had seen them unanimous in demand for the merest trifle, a treat, a holiday, a lesson's remission. 
they could not, they would not now band to besiege Madame Beck and insist on a last interview with a master who had certainly been loved, at least by some loved as they could love, but oh, what is the love of the multitude? I knew where he lived, I knew where he was to be heard of or communicated with. The distance was scarce a stone's throw. Had it been in the next room, unsummoned, I could make no use of my knowledge. To follow, to seek out, to remind, to recall. For these things I had no faculty. Monsieur Emmanuel might have passed within reach of my arm, had he passed silent and unnoticing. Silent and stirless should I have suffered him to go by. Morning wasted, afternoon came, and I thought all was over. My heart trembled in its place, my blood was troubled in its current. I was quite sick, and hardly knew how to keep at my post, or do my work. Yet the little world round me plodded on indifferent. All seemed jocund, free of care, or fear, or thought. The very pupils who, seven days since, had wept hysterically at a startling piece of news, appeared quite to have forgotten the news, its import, and their emotion. A little before five o'clock, the hour of dismissal, Madame Beck sent for me to her chamber, to read over and translate some English letter she had received, and to write for her the answer. Before settling to this work, I observed that she softly closed the two doors of her chamber, she even shut and fastened the casement, though it was a hot day, and free circulation of air was usually regarded by her as indispensable. Why this precaution? A keen suspicion, an almost fierce distrust, suggested such question. Did she want to exclude sound? What sound? I listened as I had never listened before. I listened like the evening and winter wolf, snuffing the snow, scenting prey, and hearing far off the traveller's tramp. Yet I could both listen and write. About the middle of the letter I heard, what checked my pen, a tread in the vestibule. No doorbell had rung. Rosine, acting doubtless by orders, had anticipated such reveille. Madame saw me halt. She coughed, made a bustle, spoke louder. The tread had passed on to the classes. Proceed, said Madame, but my hand was fettered, my ear enchained, my thoughts were carried off captive. The classes formed another building. The hall parted them from the dwelling house. Despite distance and partition, I heard the sudden stir of numbers, a whole division rising at once. They are putting away work, said Madame. It was indeed the hour to put away work, but why that sudden hush, that instant quell of the tumult? Wait, madame, I will see what it is. And I put down my pen and left her. Left her? No, she would not be left. Powerless to detain me, she rose and followed, close as my shadow. I turned on the last step of the stair. Are you coming too? I asked. Yes, said she meeting my glance with a peculiar aspect, a look, clouded, yet resolute. We proceeded then, not together, but she walked in my steps. He was come. Entering the first class, I saw him. There once more appeared the form most familiar. 
I doubt not they had tried to keep him away, but he was come. The girls stood in a semicircle. He was passing round, giving his farewells, pressing each hand, touching with his lips each cheek. This last ceremony, foreign custom permitted at such a parting, so solemn, to last so long. I felt it hard that Madame Beck should dog me thus, following and watching me close. My neck and shoulder shrunk in fever under her breath. I became terribly goaded. He was approaching. The semicircle was almost travelled round. He came to the last pupil. He turned. But Madame was before me. She had stepped out suddenly. She seemed to magnify her proportions and amplify her drapery. She eclipsed me. I was hid. She knew my weakness and deficiency. She could calculate the degree of moral paralysis, the total default of self-assertion, with which, in a crisis, I could be struck. She hastened to her kinsman. She broke upon him volubly. She mastered his attention. She hurried him to the door, the glass door opening on the garden. I think he looked round. Could I but have caught his eye? Courage, I think, would have rushed in to aid feeling, and there would have been a charge, and perhaps a rescue. But already the room was all confusion, the semicircle broken into groups. My figure was lost among thirty more conspicuous. Madame had her will. Yes, she got him away, and he had not seen me. He thought me absent. Five o'clock struck. A loud dismissal bell rang. The school separated, the room emptied. End of section 66. Recording by Leanne Fortune. Section 67 of Lit by Charlotte Bronte. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Leanne Fortune. Section 67. There seems, to my memory, an entire darkness and distraction in some certain minutes I then passed alone. A grief inexpressible over a loss unendurable. What should I do? Oh, what should I do when all my life's hope was thus torn by the roots out of my riven, outraged heart? What I should have done, I know not, when a little child, the least child in the school, broke with its simplicity and its unconsciousness into the raging yet silent centre of that inward conflict. Mademoiselle, lisped the treble voice, I am to give you that. Monsieur Paul said I was to seek you all over the house, from the grenier to the cellar, and when I found you, to give you that. And the child delivered a note. The little dove dropped on my knee, its olive leaf plucked off. I found neither address nor name, only these words. It was not my intention to take leave of you when I said goodbye to the rest, but I hoped to see you in class. I was disappointed. The interview is deferred. Be ready for me. Ere I sail, I must see you at leisure and speak with you at length. Be ready. My moments are numbered and just now monopolized. Besides, I have a private business on hand, which I will not share with any, nor communicate, even to you. Paul, be ready? Then it must be this evening. Was he not to go on the morrow? 
Yes, of that point I was certain. I had seen the date of his vessel's departure advertised. Oh, I would be ready, but could that longed-for meeting really be achieved? The time was so short, the schemer seemed so watchful, so active, so hostile. The way of access appeared straight as a gully, deep as a chasm. Apollyon straddled across it, breathing flames. Could my great heart overcome? Could my guide reach me? Who might tell? Yet I began to take some courage, some comfort. It seemed to me that I felt a pulse of his heart beating yet true to the whole throb of mine. I waited my champion. Apollyon came trailing his hell behind him. I think if eternity held torment, its form would not be fiery rack, nor its nature despair. I think that on a certain day amongst those days which never dawned and will not set, an angel entered Hades, stood, shone, smiled, delivered a prophecy of conditional pardon, kindled a doubtful hope of bliss to come, not now, but at a day and hour unlooked for, revealed in his own glory and grandeur the height and compass of his promise, spoke thus, then towering, became a star, and vanished into his own heaven. His legacy was suspense, a worse boon than despair. All that evening I waited, trusting in the dove-scent olive-leaf. Yet in the midst of my trust, terribly fearing, my fear pressed heavy. Cold and peculiar, I knew it for the partner of a rarely belied presentiment. The first hours seemed long and slow. In spirit I clung to the flying skirts of the last. They passed like drift cloud, like the rack scudding before a storm. They passed. All the long, hot summer day burned away like a yule log. The crimson of its clothes perished. I was left bent among the cool blue shades over the pale and ashen gleams of its night. Prayers were over. It was bedtime. My co-inmates were all retired. I still remained in the gloomy first class, forgetting or at least disregarding rules I had never forgotten or disregarded before. How long I paced that class, I cannot tell. I must have been afoot many hours. Mechanically had I moved aside benches and desks and had made for myself a path down its length. There I walked, and there... When certain that the whole household were abed and quite out of hearing, there I at last wept. Reliant on night, confiding in solitude, I kept my tears sealed, my sobs chained, no longer. They heaved my heart, they tore their way. In this house, what grief could be sacred? Soon after eleven o'clock, a very late hour in the roof set. The door unclosed, quietly but not stealthily. A lamp's flame invaded the moonlight. Madame Beck entered, with the same composed air, as if coming on an ordinary occasion, at an ordinary season. Instead of at once addressing me, she went to her desk, took her keys, and seemed to seek something. She loitered over this feigned search, long, too long. She was calm too calm, 
my mood scarce endured the pretense. Driven beyond common range, two hours since I had left behind me wanted respects and fears. Led by a touch and ruled by a word, under usual circumstances, no yoke could now be borne, no curb obeyed. It is more than time for retirement, said Madame. The rule of the house has already been transgressed too long. Madame made no answer. I did not check my walk. When she came in my way, I put her out of it. Let me persuade you to calm, miss. Let me lead you to your chamber, said she, trying to speak softly. No, I said. Neither you nor another shall persuade or lead me. Your bed shall be warmed. Goton is sitting up still. She shall make you comfortable. She shall give you a sedative. Madame, I broke out, you are a sensualist. Under all your serenity, your peace and your decorum, you are an undenied sensualist. Make your own bed warm and soft. Take sedatives and meats and drink spiced and sweet as much as you will. If you have any sorrow or disappointment, and perhaps you have, nay, I know you have, seek your own palliatives in your own chosen resources. Leave me, however, leave me, I say. I must send another to watch you, miss. I must send Goton. I forbid it. Let me alone. Keep your hand off me and my life and my troubles. Oh, madame, in your hand there is both chill and poison. You envenom and you paralyze. What have I done, miss? You must not marry Paul. He cannot marry. Dog in the manger, I said, for I knew she secretly wanted him and had always wanted him. She called him insupportable. She railed at him for a devot she did not love, but she wanted to marry that she might bind him to her interest. Deep into some of Madame's secrets I had entered, I know not how, by an intuition or an inspiration which came to me, I know not whence. In the course of living with her too, I had slowly learned that unless with an inferior, she must ever be a rival. She was my rival, heart and soul, though secretly, under the smoothest bearing, and utterly unknown to all save her and myself. Two minutes I stood over Madame, feeling that the whole woman was in my power, because in some moods, such as the present, in some stimulated states of perception, like that of this instant, her habitual disguise, her mask and her domino, were to me a mere network reticulated with holes, and I saw underneath a being heartless, self-indulgent and ignoble, she quietly retreated from me, meek and self-possessed, though very uneasy, she said. If I would not be persuaded to take rest, she must reluctantly leave me, which she did, incontinent, perhaps even more glad to get away than I was to see her vanish. This was the sole flash-eliciting, truth-extorting, rencontre which ever occurred between me and Madame Beck. This short night scene was never repeated. It did not one whit change her manner to me. I do not know that she revenged it. I do not know that she hated me the worse for my fell candour. I think she buckled herself with the secret philosophy of her strong mind and resolved to forget what it irked her to remember. I know that to the end of our mutual lives there occurred no repetition of, no allusion to, 
that fiery passage. That night passed. All nights, even the starless night before dissolution, must wear away. About six o'clock, the hour which called up the household, I went out to the court and washed my face in its cold, fresh well water. Entering by the carré, a piece of mirror glass set in an oaken cabinet repeated my image. It said I was changed. My cheeks and lips were sodden white. My eyes were glassy and my eyelids swollen and purple. On rejoining my companions, I knew they all looked at me. My heart seemed discovered to them. I believed myself self-betrayed. Hideously certain did it seem that the very youngest of the school must guess why and for whom I despaired. Isabel, the child whom I had once nursed in sickness, approached me. Would she, too, mock me? Que vous êtes pale? Vous êtes donc bien malade, mademoiselle? said she, putting her finger in her mouth and staring with a wistful stupidity which at the moment seemed to me more beautiful than the keenest intelligence. Isabel did not long stand alone in the recommendation of ignorance. Before the day was over, I gathered cause of gratitude towards the whole blind household. The multitude have something else to do than to read hearts and interpret dark sayings. Who wills may keep his own counsel, be his own secret sovereign. In the course of that day, proof met me on proof, not only that the cause of my present sorrow was unguessed, but that my whole inner life for the last six months was still mine only. It was not known, it had not been noted, that I held in peculiar value one life among all lives. Gossip had passed me by. Curiosity had looked me over. Both subtle influences, hovering always round, had never become centred upon me. A given organisation may live in a full fever hospital and escape typhus. Monsieur Manuel had come and gone. I had been taught and sought. In season and out of season he had called me, and I had obeyed him. Monsieur Paul wants Miss Lucy. Miss Lucy is with Monsieur Paul. Such had been the perpetual bulletin, and nobody commented, far less condemned. Nobody hinted, nobody jested. Madame Beck read the riddle. None else resolved it. What I now suffered was called illness, a headache. I accepted the baptism. But what bodily illness was ever like this pain? This certainty that he was gone without a farewell, this cruel conviction that fate and pursuing furies, a woman's envy and a priest's bigotry, would suffer me to see him no more? What wonder that the second evening found me like the first, untamed, tortured, again pacing a solitary room in an unalterable passion of silent desolation. Madame Beck did not herself summon me to bed that night. She did not come near me. She sent Ginevra Fanshawe, a more efficient agent for the purpose she could not have employed. Ginevra's first words, Is your headache very bad tonight? For Ginevra, like the rest, thought I had a headache, an intolerable headache which made me frightfully white in the face and insanely restless in the foot. Her first words, I say, inspired the impulse to flee anywhere. 
so that it were only out of reach. And soon, what followed, plaints about her own headaches, completed the business. I went upstairs. Presently I was in my bed, my miserable bed, haunted with quick scorpions. I had not been laid down five minutes when another emissary arrived. Goton came, bringing me something to drink. I was consumed with thirst. I drank eagerly. The beverage was sweet, but I tasted a drug. Madame says it will make you sleep. Shoo-shoo, said Goton as she received back the emptied cup. Ah, the sedative had been administered. In fact, they had given me a strong opiate. I was to be held quiet for one night. The household came to bed. The nightlight was lit, the dormitory hushed. Sleep soon reigned. Over those pillows, sleep won an easy supremacy. Contented sovereign over heads and hearts which did not ache, he passed by the unquiet. The drug wrought. I know not whether Madame had overcharged or undercharged the dose. Its result was not that she intended. Instead of stupor came excitement. I became alive to new thought, to reverie peculiar in colouring. A gathering call ran among the faculties. Their bugles sang. Their trumpets rang an untimely summons. Imagination was roused from her rest, and she came forth impetuous and venturous. With scorn she looked on matter, her mate. Rise, she said. Sluggard, this night I will have my will, nor shalt thou prevail. Look forth and view the night was her cry, and when I lifted the heavy blind from the casement close at hand, with her own royal gesture she showed me a moon supreme in an element deep and splendid. To my gasping senses she made the glimmering gloom, the narrow limits, the oppressive heat of the dormitory intolerable. She lured me to leave this den and follow her forth into dew, coolness and glory. She brought upon me a strange vision of the late at midnight. Especially, she showed the park, the summer park, with its long alleys, all silent, lone and safe. Among these lay a huge stone basin, that basin I knew, and beside which I had often stood, deep set in the tree shadows, brimming with cool water, clear with a green leafy rushy bed, what of all this? The park gates were shut up, locked, sentineled. The place could not be entered. Could it not? A point worth considering. And while revolving it, I mechanically dressed. Utterly incapable of sleeping or lying still, excited from head to foot, what could I do better than dress? The gates were locked, soldiers set before them, was there then no admission to the park? The other day, in walking past, I had seen, without then attending to the circumstance, a gap in the paling, one stake broken down. I now saw this gap again in recollection, saw it very plainly. The narrow, irregular aperture visible between the stems of the lindens, planted orderly as a colonnade, a man could not have made his way through that aperture, nor could a stout woman, 
perhaps not Madame Beck, but I thought I might. I fancied I should like to try, and once within, at this hour, the whole park would be mine. The moonlight, midnight park. How soundly the dormitory slept. What deep slumbers. What quiet breathing. How very still the whole large house. What was the time? I felt restless to know. There stood a clock in the class below. What hindered me from venturing down to consult it? By such a moon, its large white face and jet black figures must be vividly distinct. As for hindrance to this step, they offered not so much as a creaking hinge or a clicking latch. On these hot July nights, close air could not be tolerated, and the chamber door stood wide open. Will the dormitory planks sustain my tread untraitorous? Yes. I know wherever a board is loose and will avoid it. The oak staircase creaks somewhat as I descend, but not much. I am in the carré. The great class doors are close shut. They are bolted. On the other hand, the entrance to the corridor stands open. The classes seem to my thought great dreary jails, buried far back beyond thoroughfares, and for me, filled with spectral and intolerable memories, laid miserable amongst their straw and their manacles. The corridor offers a cheerful vista, leading to the high vestibule, which opens direct upon the street. Hush! The clock strikes. Ghostly deep as is the stillness of this convent, it is only eleven. While my ear follows to silence the hum of the last stroke, I catch faintly from the built-out capital a sound like bells, or like a band, a sound where sweetness, where victory, where morning blend. Oh, to approach this music nearer, to listen to it alone by the rushy basin. Let me go, oh, let me go. What hinders, what does not aid freedom? There, in the corridor, hangs my garden costume, my large hat, my shawl. There is no lock on the huge, heavy porticochere. There is no key to seek. It fastens with a sort of spring bolt, not to be opened from the outside, but which, from within, may be noiselessly withdrawn. Can I manage it? It yields to my hand, yields with propitious facility. I wonder, as that portal seems almost spontaneously to unclose, I wonder, as I cross the threshold and step on the paved street, wonder at the strange ease with which this prison has been forced. It seems as if I had been pioneered invisibly, as if some dissolving force had gone before me. For myself, I have scarce made an effort. Quiet rue for set. I find on this pavement that wanderer wooing summer night of which I mused. I see its moon over me. I feel its dew in the air. But here I cannot stay. I am still too near old haunts. So close under the dungeon I can hear the prisoners moan. This solemn piece is not what I seek. It is not what I can bear. To me the face of that sky bears the aspect of a world's death. The park also will be calm, I know. A mortal serenity prevails everywhere. 
yet let me seek the park. I took a route well known, and went up towards the palatial and royal Hauteville. Thence the music I had heard certainly floated. It was hushed now, but it might rewaken. I went on. Neither band nor bell music came to meet me. Another sound replaced it, a sound like a strong tide, a great flow, deepening as I proceeded. Light broke, movement gathered, chimes pealed. To what was I coming? Entering on the level of a grand place, I found myself, with the suddenness of magic, plunged amidst a gay, living, joyous crowd. End of section 67. Recording by Leanne Fortune. Section 68 of Villette by Charlotte Bronte. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Leanne Fortune. Section 68. Villette is one blaze, one broad illumination. The whole world seems abroad. Moonlight and heaven are banished. The town, by her own flambeau, beholds her own splendour. Gay dresses, grand equipages, fine horses and gallant riders throng the bright streets. I see even scores of masks. It is a strange scene, stranger than dreams. But where is the park? I ought to be near it. In the midst of this glare, the park must be shadowy and calm. There, at least, are neither torches, lamps, nor crowd. I was asking this question when an open carriage passed me, filled with known faces. Through the deep throng it could pass but slowly. The spirited horses fretted in their curbed ardour. I saw the occupants of that carriage well. Me they could not see, or at least not know, folded close in my large shawl, screened with my straw hat, in that motley crowd, no dress was noticeably strange. I saw the Count de Bassompierre. I saw my godmother, handsomely apparelled, comely and cheerful. I saw, too, Paulina Mary, compassed with the triple halo of her beauty, her youth, and her happiness. In looking on her countenance of joy and eyes of festal light, one scarce remembered to note the gala elegance of what she wore. I know only that the drapery floating about her was all white and light and bridal. Seated opposite to her, I saw Graham Breton. It was in looking up at him her aspect had caught its luster. The light repeated in her eyes beamed first out of his. It gave me strange pleasure to follow these friends viewlessly, and I did follow them, as I thought, to the park. I watched them alight, Carriages were inadmissible, amidst new and unanticipated splendours. Lo, the iron gateway, between the stone columns, was spanned by a flaming arch, built of massed stars, and following them cautiously beneath that arch, where were they, and where was I? In a land of enchantment, a garden most gorgeous, a plain sprinkled with coloured meteors, a forest with sparks of purple and ruby and golden fire gemming the foliage, a region not of trees and shadow, but of strangest architectural wealth, of altar and of temple, of pyramid, obelisk and sphinx. Incredible to say, 
the wonders and the symbols of Egypt teemed throughout the park of Villette. No matter that in five minutes the secret was mine, the key of the mystery picked up and its illusion unveiled, no matter that I quickly recognized the material of these solemn fragments, the timber, the paint and the pasteboard, these inevitable discoveries failed to quite destroy the charm or undermine the marvel of that night, no matter that I now seized the explanation of the whole great fate, a fate of which the conventional Rufuset had not tasted, though it had opened at dawn that morning and was still in full vigour near midnight. In past days there had been, said history, an awful crisis in the fate of Le Bassacure, involving I know not what peril to the rights and liberties of her gallant citizens. Rumours of wars there had been, if not wars themselves, a kind of struggling in the streets, a bustle, a running to and fro, some rearing of barricades, some burger rioting, some calling out of troops, much interchange of brickbats, and even a little of shot. Tradition held that patriots had fallen. In the old Basville was shown an enclosure, solemnly built in and set apart, holding, it was said, the sacred bones of martyrs. Be this as it may, a certain day in the year was still kept as a festival, in honour of the said patriots and martyrs, of somewhat apocryphal memory, the morning being given to a solemn Te Deum in St. Jean-Baptiste, the evening devoted to spectacles, decorations and illuminations, such as these I now saw. While looking up at the image of a white ibis, fixed on a column, while fathoming the deep, torch-lit perspective of an avenue, at the close of which was couched a sphinx, I lost sight of the party which, from the middle of the great square, I had followed, or rather they vanished like a group of apparitions. On this whole scene was impressed a dreamlike character. Every shape was wavering, every movement floating, every voice echo-like, half mocking, half uncertain. Paulina and her friends being gone, I scarce could avouch that I had really seen them, nor did I miss them as guides through the chaos, far less regret them as protectors amidst the night. That festal night would have been safe for a very child. Half the peasantry had come in from the outlying environs of Villette, and the decent burghers were all abroad and around, dressed in their best. My straw hat passed amidst cap and jacket, short petticoat, and long calico mantle, without perhaps attracting a glance. I only took the precaution to bind down the broad-leaf gypsy wires with a supplementary ribbon, and then I felt safe, as if masked. Safe I passed down the avenues, safe I mixed with the crowd where it was deepest. To be still was not in my power, nor quietly to observe. I took a revel of the scene, I drank the elastic night air, the swell of sound, the dubious light, now flashing, now fading. As to happiness or hope, they and I had shaken hands, but just now I scorned despair. My vague aim, as I went, was to find the stone basin, with its clear depth and green lining. Of that coolness and verdure, I thought, with the passionate thirst of unconscious fever. Amidst the glare, 
and hurry and throng and noise. I still secretly and chiefly long to come on that circular mirror of crystal and surprise the moon glassing therein her pearly front. I knew my route, yet it seemed as if I was hindered from pursuing it direct. Now a sight and now a sound called me aside, luring me down this alley and down that. Already I saw the thick planted trees which framed this tremulous and rippled glass, when, choiring out of a glade to the right, broke such a sound as I thought might be heard if heaven were to open, such a sound perhaps as was heard above the plain of Bethlehem on the night of glad tidings. The song, the sweet music, rose afar, but rushing swiftly on fast strengthening pinions, there swept through these shades so full a storm of harmonies that, had no tree been near against which to lean, I think I must have dropped. Voices were there, it seemed to me, unnumbered. Instruments varied and countless, bugle, horn and trumpet I knew. The effect was as a sea breaking into song with all its waves. The swaying tide swept this way, and then it fell back, and I followed its retreat. It led me towards a Byzantine building, a sort of kiosk, near the park centre. Round about stood crowded thousands, gathered to a grand concert in the open air. What I had heard was, I think, a wild Jaeger chorus. The night, the space, the scene, and my own mood had but enhanced the sounds and their impression. Here were assembled ladies, looking by this light most beautiful. Some of their dresses were gauzy, and some had the sheen of satin, the flowers and the blonde trembled, and the veils waved about their decorated bonnets, as that host-like chorus, with its greatly gathering sound, sounded the air above them. Most of these ladies occupied the little light park chairs, and behind and beside them stood guardian gentlemen. The outer ranks of the crowd were made up of citizens, plebeians, and police. In this outer rank, I took my place. I rather liked to find myself the silent, unknown, consequently unaccosted neighbour of the short petticoat and the sabot, and only the distant gazer at the silk robe, the velvet mantle, and the plumed chapeau. Amidst so much life and joy, too, it suited me to be alone, quite alone, having neither wish nor power to force my way through a mass so close-packed, my station was on the farthest confines where, indeed, I might hear, but could see little. Mademoiselle is not well placed, said a voice at my elbow. Who dared accost me, a being in a mood so little social? I turned, rather to repel than to reply. I saw a man, a burgher, an entire stranger, as I deemed him for one moment, but the next recognised in him a certain tradesman, a bookseller, whose shop furnished the roof set with its books and stationery, a man notorious in our pensionate for the excessive brittleness of his temper and frequent snappishness of his manner, even to us, his principal customers, but whom, for my solitary self, 
I had ever been disposed to like, and had always found civil, sometimes kind. Once, in aiding me about some troublesome little exchange of foreign money, he had done me a service. He was an intelligent man. Under his asperity, he was a good-hearted man. The thought had sometimes crossed me that a part of his nature bore affinity to a part of Monsieur Emmanuel's, whom he knew well, and whom I had often seen sitting on Moret's counter, turning over the current month's publications. And it was in this affinity I read the explanation of that conciliatory feeling with which I instinctively regarded him. Strange to say, this man knew me under my straw hat and closely folded shawl, and, though I deprecated the effort, he insisted on making a way for me through the crowd and finding me a better situation. He carried his disinterested civility further and from some quarter procured me a chair. Once and again I have found that the most cross-grained are by no means the worst of mankind, nor the humblest in station, the least polished in feeling. This man in his courtesy seemed to find nothing strange in my being here alone, only a reason for extending to me, as far as he could, a retiring yet efficient attention. Having secured me a place and a seat, he withdrew without asking a question, without obtruding a remark, without adding a superfluous word. No wonder that Professor Emmanuel liked to take his cigar and his lounge and to read his feuilleton in Monsieur Moret's shop. The two must have suited. I had not been seated five minutes ere I became aware that Chance and my worthy burger friend had brought me once more within view of a familiar and domestic group. Right before me sat the Bretons and a basson piers. Within reach of my hand, had I chosen to extend it, sat a figure like a fairy queen, whose array, lilies and their leaves seemed to have suggested whatever was not spotless white being forest green. My godmother, too, sat so near that had I leaned forward, my breath might have stirred the ribbon of her bonnet. They were too near. Having been just recognised by a comparative stranger, I felt uneasy at this close vicinage of intimate acquaintance. It made me quite start when Mrs. Breton, turning to Mr. Holm and speaking out of a kind impulse of memory, said, I wonder what my steady little Lucy would say to all this, if she were here. I wish we had brought her. She would have enjoyed it much. So she would, so she would, in her grave, sensible fashion. It is a pity, but we had asked her, rejoined the kind gentleman, and added, I like to see her so quietly pleased, so little moved, yet so content. Dear were they both to me. Dear are they to this day in their remembered benevolence. Little knew they the rack of pain which had driven Lucy almost into fever and brought her out, guideless and reckless, urged and drugged to the brink of frenzy. I had half a mind to bend over the elders' shoulders and answer their goodness with the thanks of my eyes. Monsieur de Bassompierre did not well know me, but I knew him and honoured and admired his nature, with all its plain sincerity, its warm affection and unconscious enthusiasm. 
Possibly I might have spoken, but just then Graham turned. He turned with one of his stately, firm movements, so different from those of a sharp-tempered, undersized man. There was behind him a throng, a hundred ranks deep. There were thousands to meet his eye and divide its scrutiny. Why then did he concentrate all on me, oppressing me with the whole force of that full blue steadfast orb? Why, if he would look, did not one glance satisfy him? Why did he turn on his chair, rest his elbow on its back, and study me leisurely? He could not see my face. I held it down. Surely he could not recognize me. I stooped, I turned, I would not be known. He rose, by some means he contrived to approach. In two minutes he would have had my secret. My identity would have been grasped between his never tyrannous but always powerful hands. There was but one way to evade or to check him. I implied by a sort of supplicatory gesture that it was my prayer to be let alone. After that, had he persisted, he would perhaps have seen the spectacle of Lucy incensed. Not all that was grand or good or kind in him, and Lucy felt the full amount, should have kept her quite tame, or absolutely inoffensive and shadow-like. He looked, but he desisted. He shook his handsome head, but he was mute. He resumed his seat, nor did he again turn or disturb me by a glance. Except, indeed, for one single instant, when a look, rather solicitous than curious, stole my way, speaking what somehow stilled my heart like, the south wind quieting the earth. Graham's thoughts of me were not entirely those of a frozen indifference, after all. I believe in that goodly mansion, his heart, he kept one little place under the skylights where Lucy might have entertainment, if she chose to call. It was not so handsome as the chambers where he lodged his male friends, it was not like the hall where he accommodated his philanthropy, or the library where he treasured his science. Still less did it resemble the pavilion where his marriage feast was splendidly spread. Yet gradually, by long and equal kindness, he proved to me that he kept one little closet, over the door of which was written Lucy's room. I kept a place for him too, a place of which I never took the measure, either by rule or compass. I think it was like the tent of Peri Banu. All my life long I carried it folded in the hollow of my hand, yet released from that hold and constriction. I know not but its innate capacity for expanse might have magnified it into a tabernacle for a host. Forbearing as he was tonight, I could not stay in this proximity. This dangerous place and seat must be given up. I watched my opportunity, rose, and stole away. He might think, he might even believe, that Lucy was contained within that shawl and sheltered under that hat. He never could be certain, for he did not see my face. Surely the spirit of restlessness was by this time appeased. Had I not had enough of adventure? Did I not begin to flag, quail, and wish for safety under a roof? Not so. 
I still loathed my bed in the school dormitory more than words can express. I clung to whatever could distract thought. Somehow I felt, too, that the night's drama was but begun, that the prologue was scarce spoken. Throughout this woody and turfy theatre reigned a shadow of mystery. Actors and incidents, unlooked for, waited behind the scenes. I thought, so foreboding, told me as much. Straying at random, obeying the push of every chance elbow, I was brought to a quarter where trees planted in clusters, or towering singly, broke up somewhat the dense packing of the crowd and gave it a more scattered character. These confines were far from the music and somewhat aloof even from the lamps, but there was sound enough to soothe, and with that full high moon, lamps were scarce needed. Here had chiefly settled family groups, burger parents, some of them, late as was the hour, actually surrounded by their children, with whom it had not been thought advisable to venture into the closer throng. Three fine tall trees growing close, almost twined stem within stem, lifted a thick canopy of shade above a green knoll, crowned with a seat, a seat which might have held several, yet it seemed abandoned to one. The remaining members of the fortunate party in possession of this side standing dutifully round. Yet, amongst this reverend circle was a lady, holding by the hand a little girl. When I caught sight of this little girl, she was twisting herself round on her heel, swinging from her conductress's hand, flinging herself from side to side with wanton and fantastic gyrations. These perverse movements arrested my attention. They struck me as of a character fearfully familiar. On close inspection, no less so appeared the child's equipment, the lilac silk pelisse, the small swansdown boa, the white bonnet, the whole holiday toilette, in short, was the gala garb of a cherub but too well known of that tadpole, Desiree Beck, and Desiree Beck it was, she, or an imp, in her likeness. I might have taken this discovery as a thunderclap, but such hyperbole would have been premature. Discovery was destined to rise more than one degree, ere it reached its climax. On whose hand could the amiable Desiree swing thus selfishly? Whose glove could she tear thus recklessly? Whose arm thus strain with impunity? or on the borders of whose dress thus turn and trample insolently, if not the hand, glove, arm and robe of her lady mother? And there, in an Indian shawl and a pale green crepe bonnet, there, fresh, portly, blithe and pleasant, there stood Madame Beck. Curious! I had certainly deemed Madame in her bed, and Desiree in her crib, at this blessed minute, sleeping, both of them, the sleep of the just, within the sacred walls, amidst the profound seclusion of the Rue Facette. Most certainly, also, they did not picture Miss Lucy otherwise engaged, and here we all three were taking our ibats in the fate-blazing park at midnight. 
The fact was, Madame was only acting according to her quite justifiable want. I remembered now I had heard it said among the teachers, though without at the time particularly noticing the gossip, that often, when we thought Madame in her chamber sleeping, she was gone, full-dressed, to take her pleasure at operas or plays or balls. Madame had no sort of taste for a monastic life and took care, largely, though discreetly, to season her existence with a relish of the world. Half a dozen gentlemen of her friends stood about her. Amongst these, I was not slow to recognize two or three. There was her brother, Monsieur Victor Kint. There was another person, moustached and with long hair, a calm, taciturn man, but whose traits bore a stamp and a semblance I could not mark unmoved. Amidst reserve and phlegm, amidst contrasts of character and of countenance, something there still was which recalled a face, mobile, fervent feeling, a face changeable, now clouded and now alight, a face from my world taken away, for my eyes lost, but where my best spring hours of life had alternated in shadow and in glow, that face where I had often seen movements so near the signs of genius, that why they did not shine fully out the undoubted fire, the thing, the spirit and the secret itself, I could never tell. Yes, this Joseph Emmanuel, this man of peace, reminded me of his ardent brother. Besides Monsieur Victor and Joseph, I knew another of this party. This third person stood behind and in the shade. His attitude too was stooping, yet his dress and bald white head made him the most conspicuous figure of the group. He was an ecclesiastic. He was Père Silas. Do not fancy, reader, that there was any inconsistency in the priest's presence at this fate. This was not considered a show of vanity fair, but a commemoration of patriotic sacrifice. The church patronized it, even with ostentation. There were troops of priests in the park that night. Père Silas stooped over the seat with its single occupant, the rustic bench, and that which sat upon it. A strange mass it was, bearing no shape yet magnificent. You saw, indeed, the outline of a face and features, but these were so cadaverous and so strangely placed, you could almost have fancied a head severed from its trunk and flung at random on a pile of rich merchandise. The distant lamp-rays glanced on clear pendants, on broad rings. Neither the chasteness of moonlight nor the distance of the torches could quite subdue the gorgeous dyes of the drapery. Hail, Madame Woolravens! I think you looked more witch-like than ever. And presently the good lady proved that she was indeed no corpse or ghost, but a harsh and hardy old woman. For upon some aggravation in the clamorous petition of Desiree Beck to her mother to go to the kiosk and take sweetmeats, the hunchback suddenly fetched her a resounding rap with her gold-knobbed cane. There, then, were Madame Walravens, Madame Beck, Père Silas, the whole conjuration, the secret junta. The sight of them thus assembled did me good. 
I cannot say that I felt weak before them, or abashed, or dismayed. They outnumbered me, and I was worsted and under their feet, but as yet I was not dead. End of section 68. Recording by Leanne Fortune. Section 69 of Villette by Charlotte Bronte. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Leanne Fortune. Section 69. Fascinated as by a basilisk with three heads, I could not leave this clique. The ground near them seemed to hold my feet. The canopy of entwined trees held out shadow. The night whispered a pledge of protection, and an officious lamp flashed just one beam to show me an obscure, safe seat, and then vanished. Let me now briefly tell the reader all that, during the past dark fortnight, I have been silently gathering from rumour respecting the origin and the object of Monsieur Emmanuel's departure. The tale is short and not new. Its alpha is mammon and its omega interest. If Madame Wall Ravens was hideous as a Hindu idol, she seemed also to possess, in the estimation of these her votaries, an idol's consequence. The fact was, she had been rich, very rich, and though for the present, without the command of money, she was likely one day to be rich again. At Basseterre, in Guadalupe, she possessed a large estate, received in dowry on her marriage sixty years ago, sequestered since her husband's failure, but now, it was supposed, cleared of claim, and, if duly looked after by a competent agent of integrity, considered capable of being made, in a few years, largely productive. Pere Silas took an interest in this prospective improvement for the sake of religion and the church, whereof Maglio or Ravens was a devout daughter. Madame Beck, distantly related to the hunchback, and knowing her to be without family of her own, had long brooded over contingencies with a mother's calculating forethought, and harshly treated as she was by Madame or Ravens, never ceased to court her for interest's sake. Madame Beck and the priest were thus, for many reasons, equally and sincerely interested in the nursing of the West Indian estate. But the distance was great, and the climate hazardous, the competent and upright agent wanted, must be a devoted man. Just such a man had Madame Walravens retained for twenty years in her service, blighting his life and then living on him like an old fungus. Such a man had Père Silas trained, taught, and bound to him by the ties of gratitude, habit and belief. Such a man Madame Beck knew, and could in some measure influence. My pupil, said Père Silas, if he remains in Europe, runs risk of apostasy, for he has become entangled with a heretic. Madame Beck made also her private comment, and preferred in her own breast her secret reason for desiring expatriation. 
The thing she could not obtain, she desired not another to win. Rather would she destroy it. As to Madame Woolravens, she wanted her money and her land, and knew Paul, if he liked, could make the best and faithfulest steward. So the three self-seekers banded and beset the one unselfish. They reasoned, they appealed, they implored. On his mercy they cast themselves. Into his hands they confidingly thrust their interests. They asked, but two or three years of devotion, after that he should live for himself. One of the number, perhaps, wished that in the meantime he might die. No living being ever humbly laid his advantage at Monsieur Emmanuel's feet, or confidingly put it into his hands, that he spurned the trust or repulsed the repository. What might be his private pain or inward reluctance to leave Europe, what his calculations for his own future, none asked or knew or reported. All this was a blank to me. His conferences with his confessor, I might guess. The part duty and religion were made to play in the persuasions used, I might conjecture. He was gone and had made no sign. There my knowledge closed. With my head bent and my forehead resting on my hands, I sat amidst grouped tree stems and branching brushwood. Whatever talk passed amongst my neighbours, I might hear, if I would, I was near enough. But for some time there was scarce motive to attend. They gossiped about the dresses, the music, the illuminations, the fine night. I listened to hear them say, It is calm weather for his voyage. The Antigua, his ship, will sail prosperously. No such remark fell. Neither the Antigua, nor her course, nor her passenger were named. Perhaps the light chat scarcely interested old Madame Walravens more than it did me. She appeared restless, turning her head now to this side, now that, looking through the trees and among the crowd, as if expectant of an arrival and impatient of delay. Où sont-ils? Pourquoi ne viennent-ils? I heard her mutter more than once, and at last, as if determined to have an answer to her question, which hitherto none seemed to mind, she spoke aloud this phrase, a phrase brief enough, simple enough, but it sent a shock through me. Monsieur et madame, said she, où donc est Justine Marie? Justine Marie? What was this? Justine Marie? The dead nun? Where was she? Why, in her grave, Madame Walravens? What can you want with her? You shall go to her, but she shall not come to you. Thus I should have answered, had the response lain with me. But nobody seemed to be of my mind. Nobody seemed surprised, startled, or at a loss. The quietest commonplace answer met the strange, the dead disturbing, the witch of Endor query of the hunchback. Justine Marie, said one, is coming. She is in the kiosk. She will be here presently. Out of this question and reply sprang a change in the chat. Chat it still remained, easy, desultory, familiar gossip. Hint, allusion, comment went round the circle. 
but all so broken, so dependent on references to persons not named, or circumstances not defined, that listen as intently as I would, and I did listen, now, with a fated interest, I could make out no more than that some scheme was on foot in which this ghostly Justine Marie, dead or alive, was concerned. This family junta seemed grasping at her somehow, for some reason. It seemed question of a marriage, of a fortune, for whom I could not quite make out, perhaps for Victor Kent, perhaps for Joseph Emmanuel. Both were bachelors. Once I thought the Henson jests reigned upon a young fair-haired foreigner of the party, whom they called Heinrich Müller. Amidst all the badinage, Madame wore ravens still obtruded from time to time, hoarse, cross-grained speeches, her impatience being diverted only by an implacable surveillance of Desiree, who could not stir, but the old woman menaced her with her staff. La, voila! suddenly cried one of the gentlemen. Voila, Justine Marie qui arrive. This moment was for me peculiar. I called up to memory the pictured nun on the panel. Present to my mind was the sad love story. I saw in thought the vision of the garret, the apparition of the alley, the strange birth of the berceau. I underwent a presentiment of discovery, a strong conviction of coming disclosure. Ah, when imagination once runs riot, where do we stop? What winter trees so bare and branchless? What wayside hedge-munching animals so humble that fancy, a passing cloud, and a struggling moonbeam will not clothe it in spirituality and make of it a phantom? With solemn force pressed on my heart, the expectation of mystery breaking up. Hitherto I had seen the spectre only through a glass darkly. Now was I to behold it face to face. I leaned forward. I looked. She comes, cried Joseph Emmanuel. The circle opened as if opening to admit a new and welcome member. At this instant, a torch chanced to be carried past. Its blaze aided the pale moon in doing justice to the crisis, in lighting to perfection the denouement pressing on. Surely those near me must have felt some little of the anxiety I felt in degrees so unmeted. Of that group, the coolest must have held his breath for a time. As for me, my life stood still. It is over. The moment and the nun are come. The crisis and the revelation are passed by. The flambeau glares, still within a yard, held up in a parkkeeper's hand. Its long, eager tongue of flame almost licks the figure of the expected, there, where she stands full in my sight. What is she like? What does she wear? How does she look? Who is she? There are many masks in the park tonight, and as the hour wears late, so strange a feeling of revelry and mystery begins to spread abroad that scarce would you discredit me, reader, were I to say that she is like the nun of the attic, that she wears black skirts and white headclothes, that she looks the resurrection of the flesh and that she is a risen ghost. All falsities, all figments. We will not deal in this gear. Let us be honest and cut as heretofore from the homely web of truth. Homely, though, is an ill-chosen word. 
What I see is not precisely homely. A girl of Villette stands there. A girl fresh from her pensionat. She is very comely, with the beauty indigenous to this country. She looks well nourished, fair and fat of flesh. Her cheeks are round, her eyes good, her hair is abundant. She is handsomely dressed. She is not alone. Her escort consists of three persons, two being elderly. These she addresses as Mon Oncle and Ma Tante. She laughs, she chats, good-humoured, buxom and blooming. She looks, at all points, the bourgeois belle. So much for Justine Marie. So much for ghosts and mystery. Not that this last was solved. This girl certainly is not my nun. What I saw in the garret and garden must have been taller by a span. We have looked at the city bell. We have cursorily glanced at the respectable old uncle and aunt. Have we a stray glance to give to the third member of this company? Can we spare him a moment's notice? We ought to distinguish him so far, reader. He has claims on us. We do not now meet him for the first time. I clasped my hands very hard, and I drew my breath very deep. I held in the cry. I devoured the ejaculation. I forbade the start. I spoke and I stirred no more than a stone. But I knew what I looked on. Through the dimness left in my eyes by many nights weeping, I knew him. They said he was to sail by the Antigua. Madame Beck said so. She lied. Or she had uttered what was once truth and failed to contradict it when it became false. The Antigua was gone. And there stood Paul Emmanuel. Was I glad? A huge load left me. Was it a fact to warrant joy? I know not. Ask first what were the circumstances attendant on this respite. How far did this delay concern me? Were there not those whom it might touch more nearly? After all, who may this young girl, this Justine Marie, be? Not a stranger, reader. She is known to me by sight. She visits at the Rue Facette. She is often of Madame Beck's Sunday parties. She is a relation of both the Becks and Walravens. She derives her baptismal name from the sainted nun who would have been her aunt had she lived. Her patronymic is Servieux. She is an heiress and an orphan, and Monsieur Emmanuel is her guardian. Some say her godfather. The family junta wish this heiress to be married to one of their band. Which is it? Vital question, which is it? I felt very glad now that the drug administered in the sweet draught had filled me with a possession which made bed and chamber intolerable. I always, through my whole life, like to penetrate to the real truth. I like seeking the goddess in her temple, and handling the veil, and daring the dread glance. O titaness among deities, the covered outline of thine aspect sickens often through its uncertainty. But define to us one trait, show us one lineament, clear in awful sincerity, we may gasp in untold terror, but with that gasp, we drink in a breath of thy divinity, our heart shakes, and its currents sway, like rivers lifted by earthquake, 
that we have swallowed strength. To see and know the worst is to take from fear her main advantage. End of section 69. Recording by Leanne Fortune. Section 70 of Villette by Charlotte Bronte. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Leanne Fortune. Section 70. The Wool Raven's party, augmented in numbers, now became very gay. The gentlemen fetched refreshments from the kiosk. All sat down on the turf under the trees. They drank healths and sentiments. They laughed. They jested. Monsieur Emmanuel underwent some raillery, half good-humoured, half, I thought, malicious, especially on Madame Beck's part. I soon gathered that his voyage had been temporarily deferred of his own will, without the concurrence, even against the advice, of his friends. He had let the Antigua go, and had taken his berth in the Paul A. Virginie, appointed to sail a fortnight later. It was his reason for this resolve which they teased him to assign, and which he would only vaguely indicate as the settlement of a little piece of business which he had set his heart upon. What was this business? Nobody knew. Yes, there was one who seemed partly, at least, in his confidence. A meaning look passed between him and Justine Marie. La petite va mes deux, n'est-ce pas? said he. The answer was prompt enough. God knows. Mais oui, je vous adorerai de tout mon cœur. Vous ferez de moi tout ce que vous voudrez, mon parrain. And this dear parrain took her hand and lifted it to his grateful lips. Upon which demonstration I saw the light-complexioned young Teuton, Heinrich Müller, grow restless as if he did not like it. He even grumbled a few words. Whereat Monsieur Emmanuel actually laughed in his face and with the ruthless triumph of the assured conqueror, he drew his ward nearer to him. Monsieur Emmanuel was indeed very joyous that night. He seemed not one whit subdued by the change of scene and action impending. He was the true life of the party, a little despotic, perhaps, determined to be chief in mirth as well as in labour, yet from moment to moment proving indisputably his right of leadership. His was the wittiest word pleasantest anecdote, the frankest laugh. Restlessly active, after his manner, he multiplied himself to wait on all, but oh, I saw which was his favourite. I saw at whose feet he lay on the turf. I saw whom he folded carefully from the night air, whom he tended, watched and cherished as the apple of his eye. Still, hint and raillery flew thick, and still I gathered that while Monsieur Paul should be absent, working for others, these others, not quite ungrateful, would guard for him the treasure he left in Europe. Let him bring them an Indian fortune. They would give him in return a young bride and a rich inheritance. As for the saintly consecration, the vow of constancy, that was forgotten. The blooming and charming present prevailed over the past, and at length, his nun was indeed buried. Thus it must be. The revelation was indeed come. Presentiment had not been mistaken in her impulse. There is a kind of presentiment which never is mistaken. 
It was I who had for a moment miscalculated. Not seeing the true bearing of the oracle, I had thought she muttered a vision when in truth her prediction touched reality. I might have paused longer upon what I saw. I might have deliberated ere I drew inferences. Some perhaps would have held the premises doubtful, the proofs insufficient. Some slow sceptics would have incredulously examined, ere they conclusively accepted the project of a marriage, between a poor and unselfish man of forty and his wealthy ward of eighteen. But far from me such shifts and palliatives, far from me such temporary evasion of the actual, such coward fleeing from the dread, the swift-footed, the all-overtaking fact, such feeble suspense of submission to her, the sole sovereign, such paltering and faltering resistance to the power, whose errand is to march conquering and to conquer, such traitor defection from the truth. No, I hastened to accept the whole plan. I extended my grasp and took it all in. I gathered it to me with a sort of rage of haste and folded it round me, as the soldier struck on the field folds his colours about his breast. I invoked conviction to nail upon me the certainty abhorred while embraced, to fix it with the strongest spikes her strongest strokes could drive. And when the iron had entered well my soul, I stood up, as I thought, renovated. In my infatuation I said, Truth, you are a good mistress to your faithful servants, while a lie pressed me, how I suffered. Even when the falsehood was still sweet, still flattering to the fancy, and warm to the feelings, it wasted me with hourly torment. The persuasion that affection was won could not be divorced from the dread that, by another turn of the wheel, it might be lost. Truth stripped away falsehood, and flattery and expectancy. And here I stand, free. Nothing remained now but to take my freedom to my chamber, to carry it with me to my bed, and see what I could make of it. The play was not yet, indeed, quite played out. I might have waited and watched longer that love scene under the trees, that sylvan courtship. Had there been nothing of love in the demonstration, my fancy in this hour was so generous, so creative, she could have modelled for it the most salient lineaments, and given it the deepest life, in highest colour of passion, but I would not look. I had fixed my resolve, but I would not violate my nature. And then something tore me so cruelly under my shawl, something so dug into my side, a vulture so strong in beak and talon, I must be alone to grapple with it. I think I never felt jealousy till now. This was not like enduring the endearments of Dr. John and Paulina, against which while I sealed my eyes and my ears, while I withdrew thence my thoughts, my sense of harmony still acknowledged in it a charm, this was an outrage. The love born of beauty was not mine. I had nothing in common with it. I could not dare to meddle with it, but another love, venturing diffidently into life after long acquaintance, furnace tried by pain, stamped by constancy, consolidated by affection's pure and durable alloy, submitted by intellect to intellect's own tests, and finally wrought up by his own process to his own unflawed completeness, 
This love that laughed at passion, his fast frenzies and his hot and hurried extinction, in this love I had a vested interest, and whatever tended either to its culture or its destruction, I could not view impassively. I turned from the group of trees and the merry company in its shade. Midnight was long past. The concert was over. The crowds were thinning. I followed the ebb. Leaving the radiant park and well-lit Hauteville, still well-lit, this it seems was to be a nuit blanche in Villette, I sought the dim lower quarter. Dim, I should not say, for the beauty of moonlight, forgotten in the park, here once more flowed in upon perception. High she rode, and calm and stainlessly she shone. The music and the mirth of the fate, the fire and bright hues of those lamps, had outdone and outshone her for an hour. But now, again, her glory and her silence triumphed. The rival lamps were dying. She held her course like a white fate. Drum, trumpet, bugle had uttered their clangour and were forgotten. With pencil ray she wrote on heaven and on earth records for archives everlasting. She and those stars seemed to me at once the types and witnesses of truth all regnant. The night sky lit her reign like its slow wheeling progress advanced her victory that onward movement which has been, and is, and will be, from eternity to eternity. These oil-twinkling streets are very still. I like them, for their lowliness and peace. Homeward-bound burghers pass me now and then, but these companies are pedestrians, make little noise, and are soon gone. So well do I love Villette under her present aspect, not willingly would I re-enter under a roof, but that I am bent on pursuing my strange adventure to a successful close, and quietly regaining my bed in the great dormitory before Madame Beck comes home. Only one street lies between me and the Rue Fossette. As I enter it for the first time, the sound of a carriage tears up the deep piece of this quarter. It comes this way, comes very fast. How loud sounds its rattle on the paved path! The street is narrow, and I keep carefully to the causeway. The carriage thunders past. But what do I see, or fancy I see, as it rushes by? Surely something white fluttered from that window. Surely a hand waved a handkerchief. Was that signal meant for me? Am I known? Who could recognise me? That is not Monsieur de Bassompierre's carriage, nor Mrs. Breton's. And besides, neither the Hotel Crecy nor the Chateau of La Terrasse lies in that direction. Well, I have no time for conjecture. I must hurry home. Gaining the roof set, reaching the pensionnat, all there was still. No fiacre had yet arrived with Madame and Desiree. I had left the great door ajar. Should I find it thus? Perhaps the wind or some other accident may have thrown it too, with sufficient force to start the spring bolt. In that case, hopeless became admission. My adventure must issue in catastrophe. I lightly pushed the heavy leaf. Would it yield? Yes. As soundless, as unresisting, as if some propitious genius had waited on a sesame charm in the vestibule within. Entering with bated breath, quietly making all fast, shoelessly mounting the staircase, I sought the dormitory and reached my couch. A. 
I reached it and once more drew a free inspiration. The next moment I almost shrieked, almost, but not quite, thank heaven. Throughout the dormitory, throughout the house, there reigned at this hour the stillness of death. All slept and in such hush it seemed that none dreamed. Stretched on the nineteen beds lay nineteen forms. At full length and motionless, on mine, the twentieth couch, nothing ought to have lain. I had left it void, and void should have found it. What then do I see between the half-drawn curtains? What dark usurping shape, supine long and strange? Is it a robber who has made his way through the open street door and lies there in wait? It looks very black. I think it looks not human. Can it be a wandering dog that has come in from the street and crept and nestled hither? Will it spring? Will it leap out if I approach? Approach I must. Courage. One step. My head reeled, for by the faint night lamp I saw stretched on my bed the old phantom. The nun. A cry at this moment might have ruined me. Be the spectacle what it might, I could afford neither consternation, scream, nor swoon. Besides, I was not overcome. Tempered by late incidents, my nerves disdained hysteria. Warm from illuminations and music and thronging thousands, thoroughly lashed up by a new scourge, I defied spectra. In a moment, without exclamation, I had rushed on the haunted couch. Nothing leapt out or sprung or stirred. All the movement was mine. So was all the life, the reality, the substance, the force, as my instinct felt. I tore her up, the incubus. I held her on high, the goblin. I shook her loose, the mystery. And down she fell, down all around me, down in shreds and fragments, and I trode upon her. Here again, behold the branchless tree, the unstable rosinant, the film of cloud, the flicker of moonshine. The long nun proved a long bolster dressed in a long black stole and artfully invested with a white veil. The garments, in very truth, strange as it may seem, were genuine nun's garments, and by some hand they had been disposed with a view to illusion. Whence came these vestments? Who contrived this artifice? These questions still remained. To the head bandage was pinned a slip of paper. It bore in pencil these mocking words. The nun of the attic bequeaths to Lucy Snow her wardrobe. She will be seen in the roof for set no more. And what and who was she that had haunted me? She I had actually seen three times? Not a woman of my acquaintance had the stature of that ghost. She was not of a female height. Not to any man I knew could the machination, for a moment, be attributed. Still mystified beyond expression, but as thoroughly as suddenly relieved from all sense of the spectral and unearthly, scorning also to wear out my brain with the fret of a trivial though insoluble riddle, I just bundled together stole veil and bandages, thrust them beneath my pillow, lay down, listened till I heard the wheels of Madame's home-returning fiacre, then turned, and worn out by many nights' vigils, 
conquered too perhaps by the now reacting narcotic, I deeply slept. End of section 70. Recording by Leanne Fortune. Section 71 of Villette by Charlotte Bronte. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Leanne Fortune. Section 71. The days succeeding this remarkable midsummer night proved no common day. I do not mean that it brought signs in heaven above or portents on the earth beneath, nor do I allude to meteorological phenomena, to storm, flood, or whirlwind. On the contrary, the sun rose jocund with a July face. Morning decked her beauty with rubies, and so filled her lap with roses that they fell from her in showers, making her path blush. The hours woke fresh as nymphs, and emptying on the early hills their dew vials, they stepped out dismantled of vapour, shadowless, azure, and glorious. They led the sun's deeds on a burning and unclouded course. In short, it was as fine a day as the finest summer could boast, but I doubt whether I was not the sole inhabitant of the Rufusette who cared or remembered to note this pleasant fact. Another thought busied all other heads. A thought, indeed, which had its share in my meditations, that this master consideration, not possessing for me so entire a novelty, so overwhelming a suddenness, especially so dense a mystery, as it offered to the majority of my co-speculators thereon, left me somewhat more open than the rest to any collateral observation or impression. Still, while walking in the garden, feeling the sunshine, and marking the blooming and growing plants, I pondered the same subject the whole house discussed. What subject? Merely this. When matins came to be said, there was a place vacant in the first rank of boarders. When breakfast was served, there remained a coffee cup, unclaimed. When the housemaid made the beds, she found in one a bolster laid lengthwise, clad in a cap and nightgown, and when Ginevra Fanshawe's music mistress came early, as usual, to give the morning lesson, that accomplished and promising young person, her pupil, failed utterly to be forthcoming. High and low was Miss Fanshawe's sort. Through length and breadth was the house ransacked, vainly, not a trace, not an indication, not so much as a scrap of a billet rewarded the search. The nymph was vanished, engulfed in the past night, like a shooting star, swallowed up by darkness. Deep was the dismay of surveillant teachers, deeper the horror of the defaulting directress. Never had I seen Madame Beck so pale or so appalled. Here was a blow struck at her tender part, her weak side. Here was damage done to her interest. How, too, had the untoward event happened? By what outlet had the fugitive taken wing? Not a casement was found unfastened, not a pane of glass broken. All the doors were bolted secure. Never to this day has Madame Beck obtained satisfaction on this point, nor indeed has anybody else concerned, save and excepting one, Lucy Snow, who could not forget how, to facilitate a certain enterprise, 
a certain great door had been drawn softly to its lintel, closed, indeed, but neither bolted nor secure. The thundering carriage and pair encountered were now likewise recalled, as well as that puzzling signal, the waved handkerchief. From these premises and one or two others, inaccessible to any but myself, I could draw but one inference. It was a case of elopement. Morally certain on this head, and seeing Madame Beck's profound embarrassment, I at last communicated my conviction. Having alluded to Monsieur de Hamal's suit, I found, as I expected, that Madame Beck was perfectly au fait to that affair. She had long since discussed it with Mrs. Chalmondelet and laid her own responsibility in the business on that lady's shoulders. To Mrs. Chalmondelet and Monsieur de Bassompierre, she now had recourse. We found that the Hotel Crecy was already alive to what had happened. Ginevra had written to her cousin Paulina, vaguely signifying hymeneal intentions. Communications had been received from the family of de Hamel. Monsieur de Bassompierre was on the track of the fugitives. He overtook them too late. In the course of the week, the post brought me a note. I may as well transcribe it. It contains explanation on more than one point. Dear old Tim, short for Timon, I am off, you see, gone like a shot. Alfred and I intended to be married in this way almost from the first. We never meant to be spliced in the humdrum way of other people. Alfred has too much spirit for that. And so have I, Dieu merci. Do you know Alfred, who used to call you the dragon, has seen so much of you during the last few months that he begins to feel quite friendly towards you. He hopes you won't miss him now that he has gone. He begs to apologize for any little trouble he may have given you. He is afraid he rather inconvenienced you once when he came upon you in the grenier, just as you were reading a letter seemingly of the most special interest. But he could not resist the temptation to give you a start. You appeared so wonderfully taken up with your correspondent. En revanche, he says you once frightened him by rushing in for a dress or a shawl or some other chiffon. At the moment when he had struck a light and was going to take a quiet whiff of his cigar while waiting for me, do you begin to comprehend by this time that Monsieur le Comte de Hamal was the nun of the attic and that he came to see your humble servant? I will tell you how he managed it. You know he has the entree of the Athenae, where two or three of his nephews, the sons of his eldest sister, Madame de Melcy, are students. You know the court of the Athenae is on the other side of the high wall bounding your walk, the Allée de Vendue. Alfred can climb as well as he can dance or fence. His amusement was to make the escalade of our pensionnat by mounting first the wall, then, by the aid of that high tree, overspreading the Grand Berceau, and resting some of its boughs on the roof of the lower buildings of our premises. He managed to scale the first class and the Grand Soleil. One night, by the way, he fell out of this tree, tore down some of the branches, nearly broke his own neck, and after all, in running away, got a terrible fright, and was nearly caught by two people, Madame Beck and Monsieur Emmanuel, he thinks, walking in the alley. From the Grand Soleil, the ascent is not difficult to the highest block of building, finishing in the great garret. The skylight, you know, is day and night, left half open for air. 
by the skylight he entered. Nearly a year ago, I chanced to tell him our legend of the nun. That suggested his romantic idea of the spectral disguise, which I think you must allow he has very cleverly carried out. But for the nun's black gown and white veil, he would have been caught again and again, both by you and that tiger Jesuit, Monsieur Paul. He thinks you both capital ghost-seers and very brave. What I wonder at is, rather your secretiveness than your courage. How could you endure the visitations of that long spectre, time after time, without crying out, telling everybody, and rousing the whole house and neighbourhood? Oh, and how did you like the nun as a bedfellow? I dressed her up. Didn't I do it well? Did you shriek when you saw her? I should have gone mad. But then you have such nerves, real iron and bent leather. I believe you feel nothing. You haven't the same sensitiveness that a person of my constitution has. You seem to me insensible both to pain and fear and grief. You are a real old Diogenes. Well, dear grandmother, and are you not mightily angry at my moonlight flitting and runaway match? I assure you it is excellent fun, and I did it partly to spite that minx, Paulina, and that bear, Dr. John, to show them that, with all their airs, I could get married as well as they. Monsieur de Bassompierre was at first in a strange fume with Alfred. He threatened a prosecution for détournement de meunier, and I know not what. He was so abominably in earnest that I found myself forced to do a little bit of the melodramatic. Go down on my knees, sob, cry, drench three pocket handkerchiefs. Of course, mon oncle soon gave in. Indeed, where was the use of making a fuss? I am married, and that's all about it. He still says our marriage is not legal, because I am not of age, forsooth, as if that made any difference. I am just as much married as if I were a hundred. However, we are to be married again, and I am to have a trousseau, and Mrs. Chalmondelet is going to superintend it, and there are some hopes that Monsieur de Bassompierre will give me a decent portion which will be very convenient, as dear Alfred has nothing but his nobility, native and hereditary, and his pay. I only wish uncle would do things unconditionally, in a generous, gentlemanlike fashion. He is so disagreeable as to make the diary depend on Alfred's giving his written promise that he will never touch cards or dice from the day it is paid down. They accuse my angel of a tendency to play, I don't know anything about that, but I do know he is a dear, adorable creature. I cannot sufficiently extol the genius with which de Hamel managed our flight. How clever in him to select the night of the fate, when Madame, for he knows her habits, as he said, would infallibly be absent at the concert in the park. I suppose you must have gone with her. I watched you rise and leave the dormitory about eleven o'clock. How you returned alone and on foot, I cannot conjecture. That surely was you we met in the narrow old Rue Saint-Jean. Did you see me wave my handkerchief from the carriage window? Adio! Rejoice in my good luck. Congratulate me on my supreme happiness. And believe me, dear cynic and misanthrope, yours in the best of health and spirits. Ginevra Laura de Hamal, Nee Fanshawe. P.S. Remember, I am a countess now. 
Papa, Mama and the girls at home will be delighted to hear that. My daughter, the Countess. My sister, the Countess. Bravo! Sounds rather better than Mrs. John Breton, Hein. In winding up Mistress Fanshawe's memoirs, the reader will no doubt expect to hear that she came finally to bitter expiation of her youthful levities. Of course, a large share of suffering lies in reserve for her future. A few words will embody my father knowledge respecting her. I saw her towards the close of her honeymoon. She called on Madame Beck and sent for me into the salon. She rushed into my arms laughing. She looked very blooming and beautiful. Her curls were longer, her cheeks rosier than ever. Her white bonnet and her Flanders veil, her orange flowers and her bride's dress became her mightily. I have got my portion, she cried at once. Ginevra ever stuck to the substantial. I always thought there was a good trading element in her composition, much as she scorned the bourgeoise, and Uncle de Bassompierre is quite reconciled. I don't mind his calling Alfred a nincompoop. That's only his coarse Scotch breeding, and I believe Paulina envies me, and Dr. John is wild with jealousy, fit to blow his brains out, and I'm so happy. I really think I've hardly anything left to wish for. Unless it be a carriage and an hotel, and oh, I must introduce you to Montmarie. Alfred, come here. And Alfred appeared from the inner salon, where he was talking to Madame Beck, receiving the blended felicitations and reprimands of that lady. I was presented under my various names, the dragon, Diogenes, and Timon. The young colonel was very polite. He made me a prettily turned, neatly worded apology about the ghost visits, etc., concluding with saying that the best excuse for all his iniquities stood there, pointing to his bride. And then the bride sent him back to Madame Beck, and she took me to herself, and proceeded literally to suffocate me with her unrestrained spirits, her girlish, giddy, wild nonsense. She showed her ring exultingly. She called herself Madame la Comtesse de Hamal, and asked how it sounded a score of times. I said very little. I gave her only the crust and rind of my nature. No matter, she expected of me nothing better. She knew me too well to look for compliments. My dry jibes pleased her well enough, and the more impassable and prosaic my mien, the more merrily she laughed. Soon after his marriage, Monsieur de Hamal was persuaded to leave the army as the surest way of weaning him from certain unprofitable associates and habits. A post of attaché was procured for him, and he and his young wife went abroad. I thought she would forget me now, but she did not. For many years she kept up a capricious, fitful sort of correspondence. During the first year or two, it was only of herself and Alfred she wrote. Then Alfred faded in the background. Herself and a certain newcomer prevailed. One Alfred Fanshawe de Bassompierre de Hamel began to reign in his father's stead. There were great boastings about this personage, extravagant amplifications upon miracles of precocity, mixed with vehement objurgations against the phlegmatic incredulity with which I received them. I didn't know what it was to be a mother. Unfeeling thing that I was, the sensibilities of the maternal heart were Greek and Hebrew to me, and so on. In due course of nature, this young gentleman took his degrees in teething, measles, whooping cough. That was a terrible time for me, 
The mamma's letters became a perfect shout of affliction. Never woman was so put upon by calamity. Never human being stood in such need of sympathy. I was frightened at first and wrote back pathetically. But I soon found out there was more cry than wool in the business and relapsed into my natural, cruel insensibility. As to the youthful sufferer, he weathered each storm like a hero. Five times was that youth in articulo mortis, and five times did he miraculously survive. In the course of years, there arose ominous murmurings against Alfred I. Monsieur de Bassompierre had to be appealed to, debts had to be paid, some of them of that dismal and dingy order called debts of honour. Ignoble plaints and difficulties became frequent. Under every cloud, no matter what its nature, Ginevra, as of old, called out lustily for sympathy and aid. She had no notion of meeting any distress single-handed. In some shape, from some quarter or other, she was pretty sure to obtain her will, and so she got on fighting the battle of life by proxy, and on the whole, suffering as little as any human being I have ever known. End of section 71. Recording by Leanne Fortune. Section 72 of Villette by Charlotte Bronte. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Leanne Fortune. Section 72 Must I, ere I close, render some account of that freedom and renovation which I won on the fate night? Must I tell how I and the two stalwart companions I brought home from the illuminated park bore the test of intimate acquaintance? I tried them the very next day. They had boasted their strength loudly when they reclaimed me from love and its bondage, but upon my demanding deeds, not words, some evidence of better comfort, some experience of a relieved life, freedom excused himself, as for the present impoverished and disabled to assist. And renovation never spoke. He had died in the night suddenly. I had nothing left for it then, but to trust secretly that conjecture might have hurried me too fast and too far to sustain the oppressive hour by reminders of the distorting and discolouring magic of jealousy. After a short and vain struggle, I found myself brought back captive to the old rack of suspense, tied down and strained anew. Shall I yet see him before he goes? Will he bear me in mind? Does he purpose to come? Will this day, will the next hour bring him? Or must I again essay that corroding pain of long attent, that rude agony of rapture at the close, that mute mortal wrench, which, in at once uprooting hope and doubt, shakes life, while the hand that does the violence cannot be caressed to pity, because absence interposes her barrier. It was the feast of the assumption. No school was held. The boarders and teachers, after attending mass in the morning, were gone a long walk into the country to take their good air or afternoon meal at some farmhouse. I did not go with them, for now but two days remained ere the Paul of Virginia must sail, and I was clinging to my last chance as the living waif of a wreck 
clings to his last raft or cable. There was some joiner's work to do in the first class, some bench or desk to repair. Holidays were often turned to account for the performance of these operations, which could not be executed when the rooms were filled with pupils. As I sat solitary, purposing to adjourn to the garden and leave the coast clear, but too listless to fulfil my own intent, I heard the workmen coming. Foreign artisans and servants do everything by couples. I believe it would take two Labasicurian carpenters to drive a nail, while tying on my bonnet, which had hitherto hung by its ribbons from my idle hand, I vaguely and momentarily wondered to hear the step of but one ouvrier. I noted, too, as captives in dungeons find sometimes dreary leisure to note the merest trifles, that this man wore shoes and not sabots. I concluded that it must be the master carpenter coming to inspect before he sent his journeyman. I threw round me my scarf. He advanced. He opened the door. My back was towards it. I felt a little thrill, a curious sensation, too quick and transient to be analysed. I turned. I stood in these supposed master artisan's presence. Looking towards the doorway, I saw it filled with a figure, and my eyes printed upon my brain the picture of Monsieur Paul. Hundreds of the prayers with which we weary heaven bring to the suppliant no fulfilment. Once happily in life, one golden gift falls prone in the lap, one boon full and bright, perfect from fruition's mint. Monsieur Emmanuel wore the dress in which he probably purposed to travel, a surtout, guarded with velvet. I thought him prepared for instant departure. And yet I had understood that two days were yet to run before the ship sailed. He looked well and cheerful. He looked kind and benign. He came in with eagerness. He was close to me in one second. He was all amity. It might be his bridegroom mood which thus brightened him. Whatever the cause, I could not meet his sunshine with cloud. If this were my last moment with him, I would not waste it in forced, unnatural distance. I loved him well, too well not to smite out of my path even jealousy herself, when she would have obstructed a kind farewell. A cordial word from his lips, or a gentle look from his eyes, would do me good for all the span of life that remained to me. It would be comfort in the last strait of loneliness. I would take it, I would taste the elixir, and pride should not spill the cup. The interview would be short, of course. He would say to me just what he had said to each of the assembled pupils. He would take and hold my hand two minutes. He would touch my cheek with his lips. For the first, last, only time, and then no more. Then, indeed, the final parting, then the wide separation, the great gulf I could not pass to go to him, across which, haply, he would not glance to remember me. He took my hand in one of his, with the other he put back my bonnet, he looked into my face, his luminous smile went out, his lips expressed something almost like the wordless language of a mother who finds a child greatly and unexpectedly changed, broken with illness or worn out by want. A check supervened. Paul, Paul, 
said a woman's hurried voice behind. Paul, come into the salon. I have yet a great many things to say to you. Conversation for the whole day. And so has Victor. And Joseph is here. Come, Paul, come to your friends. Madame Beck, brought to the spot by vigilance or an inscrutable instinct, pressed so near she almost thrust herself between me and Monsieur Emmanuel. Come, Paul, she reiterated, her eye grazing me with its hard ray like a steel stylet. She pushed against her kinsman. I thought he receded. I thought he would go. Pierced deeper than I could endure, made now to feel what defied suppression, I cried, My heart will break. What I felt seemed literal heartbreak but the seal of another fountain yielded under the strain. One breath from Monsieur Paul, the whisper, Trust me, lifted a load, opened an outlet. With many a deep sob, with thrilling, with icy shiver, with strong trembling, and yet with relief, I wept. Leave her to me. It is a crisis. I will give her a cordial and it will pass, said the calm Madame Beck. To be left to her and her cordial seemed to me something like being left to the poisoner and her bowl. When Monsieur Paul answered deeply, harshly and briefly, La moi in the grim sound I felt a music strange, strong, but life-giving. Laissez-moi, he repeated, his nostrils opening and his facial muscles all quivering as he spoke. But this will never do, said Madame with sternness, more sternly rejoined her kinsman. Sorte d'ici. I will send for Père Silas. On the spot I will send for him, she threatened pertinaciously. Fum, cried the professor, not now in his deep tones, but in his highest and most excited key. Fum, sorte à l'instant. He was roused, and I loved him in his wrath with a passion beyond what I had yet felt. What you do is wrong, pursued Madame. It is an act characteristic of men of your unreliable imaginative temperament, a step impulsive, injudicious, inconsistent, a proceeding vexatious, and not estimable in the view of persons of steadier and more resolute character. You know not what I have of steady and resolute in me, said he, but you shall see. The event shall teach you. Modest, he continued, less fiercely. Be gentle, be pitying, be a woman. Look at this poor face and relent. You know I am your friend and the friend of your friends, in spite of your taunts. You well and deeply know I may be trusted. Of sacrificing myself I made no difficulty, but my heart is pained by what I see. It must have and give Solus, leave me. This time in the leave me, there was an intonation so bitter and so imperative. I wondered that even Madame Beck herself could for one moment delay obedience. But she stood firm. She gazed upon him dauntless. She met his eye, forbidding and fixed as stone. She was opening her lips to retort. I saw over all Monsieur Paul's face a quick rising light and fire. I can hardly tell how he managed the movement. It did not seem violent. It kept the form of courtesy. He gave his hand. 
It scarce touched her, I thought. She ran, she whirled from the room, she was gone, and the door shut in one second. The flash of passion was all over very soon. He smiled as he told me to wipe my eyes. He waited quietly till I was calm, dropping from time to time a stilling, solacing word. Ere long I sat beside him once more myself, reassured, not desperate, nor yet desolate, not friendless, not hopeless, not sick of life and seeking death. It made you very sad then to lose your friend, said he. It kills me to be forgotten, monsieur, I said. All these weary days I have not heard from you one word, and I was crushed with the possibility, growing to certainty, that you would depart without saying farewell. Must I tell you what I told Modeste Beck, that you do not know me? Must I show and teach you my character? You will have proof that I can be a firm friend. Without clear proof, this hand will not lie still in mine. It will not trust my shoulder as a safe stay. Good, the proof is ready. I come to justify myself. Say anything, teach anything, prove anything, monsieur. I can listen now. Then, in the first place, you must go out with me a good distance into the town. I came on purpose to fetch you. Without questioning his meaning, or sounding his plan, or offering the semblance of an objection, I retied my bonnet. I was ready. The route he took was by the boulevards. He several times made me sit down on the seats stationed under the lime trees. He did not ask if I was tired, but looked and drew his own conclusions. All these weary days, said he, repeating my words with a gentle, kindly mimicry of my voice and foreign accent, not new from his lips, and of which the playful banter never wounded, not even when coupled as it often was, with the assertion that however I might write his language, I spoke and always should speak it imperfectly and hesitatingly. All these weary days I have not for one hour forgotten you, Faithful women err in this, that they think themselves the sole faithful of God's creatures. On a very fervent and living truth to myself, I too, till lately, scarce dared count from any quarter, but look at me. I lifted my happy eyes. They were happy now, or they would have been no interpreters of my heart. Well, said he, after some second scrutiny, there is no denying that signature. Constancy wrote it. Her pen is of iron. Was the record painful? Severely painful, I said with truth. Withdraw her hand, monsieur. I can bear its inscribing force no more. Elle est tout palais, said he, speaking to himself. Cette figure, l'âme fait mal. Ah, I am not pleasant to look at? I could not help saying this. The words came unbidden. I never remember the time when I had not a haunting dread of what might be the degree of my outward deficiency. This dread pressed me at the moment with special force. A great softness passed upon his countenance. His violet eyes grew suffused and glistening under their deep Spanish lashes. He started up. Let us walk on. Do I displease your eyes much? I took courage to urge. The point had its vital import for me. He stopped and gave me a short, strong answer. An answer which silenced, subdued, yet profoundly satisfied. 
ever after that I knew what I was for him and what I might be for the rest of the world, I ceased painfully to care. Was it weak to lay so much stress on an opinion about appearance? I fear it might be. I fear it was. But in that case, I must avow no light share of weakness. I must own great fear of displeasing, a strong wish moderately to please Monsieur Paul. Whether we rambled, I scarce knew. Our walk was long, yet seemed short. The path was pleasant, the day lovely. Monsieur Emmanuel talked of his voyage. He thought of staying away three years. On his return from Guadalupe, he looked forward to release from liabilities and a clear course. And what did I purpose doing in the interval of his absence, he asked. I had talked once, he reminded me, of trying to be independent and keeping a little school of my own, had I dropped the idea. Indeed, I had not. I was doing my best to save what would enable me to put it in practice. He did not like leaving me in the Rue Facette. He feared I should miss him there too much. I should feel desolate. I should grow sad. This was certain, but I promised to do my best to endure. Still, said he, speaking low, there is another objection to your present residence. I should wish to write to you sometimes. It would not be well to have any uncertainty about the safe transmission of letters, and in the Rue Fossette, in short, our Catholic discipline in certain matters, though justifiable and expedient, might possibly, under peculiar circumstances, become liable to misapplication, perhaps abuse. But if you write, said I, I must have your letters, and I will have them. Ten directors, twenty directresses, shall not keep them from me. I am a Protestant. I will not bear that kind of discipline, monsieur. I will not. Doucement, doucement, rejoined he. We will contrive a plan. We have our resources. Soyez tranquille. So speaking, he paused. We were now returning from the long walk. We had reached the middle of a clean faubourg, where the houses were small, but looked pleasant. It was before the white doorstep of a very neat abode that Monsieur Paul had halted. I call here, said he. He did not knock, but taking from his pocket a key, he opened and entered at once. Ushering me in, he shut the door behind us. No servant appeared. The vestibule was small, like the house, but freshly and tastefully painted. Its vista closed in a French window with vines trained about the panes, tendrils and green leaves kissing the glass. Silence reigned in this dwelling. Opening an inner door, Monsieur Paul disclosed a parlour or salon, very tiny, but I thought very pretty. Its delicate walls were tinged like a blush. Its floor was waxed. A square of brilliant carpet covered its centre. Its small round table shone like the mirror over its hearth. There was a little couch, a little chiffonier, the half-open crimson silk door of which showed porcelain on the shelves. There was a French clock, a lamp. There were ornaments in biscuit china. The recess of the single ample window was filled with a green stand bearing three green flower pots, each filled with a fine plant glowing in bloom. In one corner appeared a querydon with a marble top, and upon it a workbox, and a glass filled with violets in water. 
The lattice of this room was open. The outer air breathing through gave freshness. The sweet violets lent fragrance. Pretty, pretty place, said I. Monsieur Paul smiled to see me so pleased. Must we sit down here and wait? I asked in a whisper, half awed by the deep pervading hush. We will first peep into one or two other nooks of this nutshell, he replied. Dare you take the freedom of going all over the house? I inquired. Yes, I dare, said he quietly. He led the way. I was shown a little kitchen with a little stove and oven, with few but bright brasses, two chairs and a table. A small cupboard held a diminutive but commodious set of earthenware. There is a coffee service of china in the salon, said Monsieur Paul, as I looked at the six green and white dinner plates, the four dishes, the cups and jugs to match. Conducted up the narrow but clean staircase, I was permitted a glimpse of two pretty cabinets of sleeping rooms. Finally, I was once more led below, and we halted with a certain ceremony before a larger door than had yet been opened. Producing a second key, Monsieur Manuel adjusted it to the lock of this door. He opened, put me in before him. Voici, he cried. End of section 72 Recording by Leanne Fortune Section 73 of Villette by Charlotte Bronte This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Leanne Fortune Section 73 I found myself in a good-sized apartment, scrupulously clean, though bare, compared with those I had hitherto seen. The well-scoured boards were carpetless. It contained two rows of green benches and desks, with an alley down the centre, terminating in an estrade, a teacher's chair and table, behind them a tableau. On the walls hung two maps. In the windows flowered a few hardy plants. In short, here was a miniature class, complete, neat, pleasant. It is a school, then, said I. Who keeps it? I never heard of an establishment in this Faubourg. Will you have the goodness to accept of a few prospectuses for distribution in behalf of a friend of mine? asked he, taking from his surtout pocket some quires of these documents and putting them into my hand. I looked, I read, printed in fair characters, Externet de Demoiselle, numero seven, Faubourg. Clotilde, Directrice, Mademoiselle Lucy Snow. And what did I say to Monsieur Paul Emmanuel? Certain junctures of our lives must always be difficult of recall to memory. Certain points, crises, certain feelings, joys, griefs and amazements, when reviewed, must strike us as things wilded and whirling, dim as a wheel, fast, spun. I can no more remember the thoughts or the words of the ten minutes succeeding this disclosure than I can retrace the experience of my earliest year of life. And yet the first thing distinct to me is the consciousness that I was speaking very fast, repeating over and over again. Did you do this, Monsieur Paul? Is this your house? Did you furnish it? Did you get these papers printed? 
Do you mean me? Am I the directress? Is there another Lucy Snow? Tell me, say something. But he would not speak. His pleased silence, his laughing down look, his attitude are visible to me now. How is it? I must know all, all, I cried. The packet of papers fell on the floor. He had extended his hand, and I had fastened thereon, oblivious of all else. Ah, you said I had forgotten you all these weary days, said he. Poor old Emmanuel, these are the thanks he gets for trudging about three mortal weeks, from house-painter to upholsterer, from cabinet-maker to charwoman, Lucy and Lucy's cot, the sole thoughts in his head. I hardly knew what to do. I first caressed the soft velvet on his cuff, and then I stroked the hand it surrounded. It was his foresight, his goodness, his silent, strong, effective goodness that overpowered me by their proved reality. It was the assurance of his sleepless interest which broke on me like a light from heaven. It was his, I will dare to say it, his fond, tender look, which now shook me indescribably. In the midst of all, I forced myself to look at the practical. The trouble, I cried, and the cost. Had you money, Monsieur Paul? Plenty of money, said he heartily. The dispersal of my large teaching connection put me in possession of a handsome sum. With part of it I determined to give myself the richest treat that I have known or shall know. I like this. I have reckoned on this hour, day and night lately. I would not come near you because I would not forestall it. Reserve is neither my virtue nor my vice. If I had put myself into your power and you had begun with your questions of look and lip, where have you been, Monsieur Paul? What have you been doing? What is your mystery? My solitary first and last secret would presently have unravelled itself in your lap. Now, he pursued, you shall live here and have a school. You shall employ yourself while I am away. You shall think of me sometimes. You shall mind your health and happiness for my sake. And when I come back, there he left a blank. I promised to do all he told me. I promised to work hard and willingly. I will be your faithful steward, I said. I trust at your coming the account will be ready. Monsieur, monsieur, you are too good. In such inadequate language, my feelings struggled for expression. They could not get it. Speech, brittle and unmalleable, and cold as ice, dissolved or shivered in the effort. He watched me still. He gently raised his hand to stroke my hair. It touched my lips in passing. I pressed it close. I paid it tribute. He was my king. Royal for me had been that hand's bounty. To offer homage was both a joy and a duty. The afternoon hours were over, and the stiller time of evening shaded the quiet Faubourg. Monsieur Paul claimed my hospitality. Occupied and afoot since morning, he needed refreshment. He said I should offer him chocolate in my pretty gold and white china service. He went out and ordered what was needful from the restaurant. He placed the small guerdon and two chairs in the balcony outside the French window under the screening vines. With what shy joy I accepted my part as hostess, arranged the salver, served the benefactor guest. 
This balcony was in the rear of the house. The gardens of the Faubourg were round us. Fields extended beyond. The air was still mild and fresh. Above the poplars, the laurels, the cypresses and the roses looked up a moon so lovely and so halicon. The heart trembled under her smile. A star shone subject beside her with the unemulous ray of pure love. In a large garden near us, a jet rose from a well, and a pale statue leaned over the play of waters. Monsieur Paul talked to me. His voice was so modulated that it mixed harmonious with the silver whisper, the gush, the musical sigh, in which light breeze, fountain and foliage intoned their lulling vesper. Happy hour, stay one moment, droop those plumes, rest those wings, incline to mine that brow of heaven, White angel, let thy light linger, leave its reflection on succeeding clouds. Bequeath its cheer to that time which needs a ray in retrospect. Our meal was simple, the chocolate, the rolls, the plate of fresh summer fruit. Cherries and strawberries, bedded in green leaves, formed the whole. But it was what we both liked better than a feast, and I took a delight inexpressible in tending Monsieur Paul. I asked him whether his friends, Père Silas and Madame Beck, knew what he had done, whether they had seen my house. Mon ami, said he, none knows what I have done, save you and myself. The pleasure is consecrated to us too, unshared and unprofaned. To speak truth, there has been to me in this matter a refinement of enjoyment I would not make vulgar by communication. Besides, smiling, I wanted to prove to Miss Lucy that I could keep a secret. How often has she taunted me with lack of dignified reserve and needful caution? How many times has she saucily insinuated that all my affairs are the secret of Paul This was true enough. I had not spared him on this point, nor perhaps on any other that was assailable. Magnificent-minded, Grand-hearted, dear, faulty little man, you deserved candour, and from me always had it. Continuing my queries, I asked to whom the house belonged, who was my landlord, the amount of my rent. He instantly gave me these particulars in writing. He had foreseen and prepared all things. The house was not Monsieur Paul's, that I guessed. He was hardly the man to become a proprietor. I more than suspected in him a lamentable absence of the saving faculty. He could get, but not keep. He needed a treasurer. The tenement, then, belonged to a citizen in the Bastille, a man of substance, Monsieur Paul said. He startled me by adding, A friend of yours, Miss Lucy, a person who has a most respectful regard for you and to my pleasant surprise, I found the landlord was none other than Monsieur Moret, the short-tempered and kind-hearted bookseller, who had so kindly found me a seat that eventful night in the park. It seems Monsieur Moret was, in his station, rich, as well as much respected, and possessed several houses in this Faubourg. The rent was moderate, scarce half of what it would have been for a house of equal size nearer the centre of Villette. And then, observed Monsieur Paul, should fortune not favour you, though I think she will, I have the satisfaction to think you are in good hands. 
Monsieur Moret will not be extortionate. The first year's rent you have already in your savings. Afterwards, Miss Lucy must trust God and herself. But now, what will you do for pupils? I must distribute my prospectuses. Right, by way of losing no time, I gave one to Monsieur Moret yesterday. Should you object to beginning with three petite bourgeois, the demoiselles Moret, they are at your service. Monsieur, you forget nothing. You are wonderful. Object? It would become me indeed to object. I suppose I hardly expected the outset to number aristocrats in my little day school. I care not if they never come. I shall be proud to receive Monsieur Moret's daughters. Besides these, pursued he, another pupil offers, who will come daily to take lessons in English. And as she is rich, she will pay handsomely. I mean my goddaughter and ward, Justine Marie Savieux. What is in a name? What in three words? Till this moment I had listened with living joy. I had answered with gleeful quickness. A name froze me. Three words struck me mute. The effect could not be hidden, and indeed I scarce tried to hide it. What now? said Monsieur Paul. Nothing. Nothing. Your countenance changes. Your colour and your very eyes fade. Nothing. You must be ill. You have some suffering. Tell me what. I had nothing to tell. He drew his chair nearer. He did not grow vexed, though I continued silent and icy. He tried to win a word. He entreated with perseverance. He waited with patience. Justine Marie is a good girl, said he. Docile and amiable, not quick, but you will like her. I think not. I think she must not come here. Such was my speech. Do you wish to puzzle me? Do you know her? But in truth there is something. Again you are pale as that statue. Rely on Paul Carlos. Tell him the grief. His chair touched mine. His hand, quietly advanced, turned me towards him. Do you know Marie Justine? said he again. The name repronounced by his lips overcame me unaccountably. It did not prostrate. No, it stirred me up running with haste and heat through my veins, recalling an hour of quick pain, many days and nights of heart-sickness. Near me, as he now sat, strongly and closely as he had long twined his life in mine, far as had progressed, and near as was achieved our minds and affection's assimilation, the very suggestion of interference, of heart-separation, could be heard only with a fermenting excitement and impetuous throe a disdainful resolve, an ire, a resistance of which no human eye or cheek could hide the flame, nor any truth accustomed human tongue curb the cry. I want to tell you something, I said. I want to tell you all. Speak, Lucy, come near, speak. Who prizes you if I do not? Who is your friend if not Emmanuel? Speak. I spoke. All escaped from my lips. I lacked not words now. Fast I narrated, fluent I told my tale, it streamed on my tongue. I went back to the night in the park, I mentioned the medicated draught, why it was given, its goading effect, how it had torn rest from under my head, shaken me from my couch, carried me abroad with the lure of a vivid yet solemn fancy, a summer night solitude on turf, under trees, near a deep, cool lakelet. 
I told the scene realized, the crowd, the masks, the music, the lamps, the splendors, the guns booming afar, the bells sounding on high. All I had encountered I detailed, all I had recognized, heard and seen, how I had beheld and watched himself, how I listened, how much heard, what conjectured, the whole history, in brief, summoned to his confidence, rushed thither, truthful, literal, ardent, bitter. Still, as I narrated, instead of checking, he incited me to proceed. He spurred me by the gesture, the smile, the half-word. Before I had half done, he held both my hands. He consulted my eyes with a most piercing glance. There was something in his face which tended neither to calm nor to put me down. He forgot his own doctrine. He forsook his own system of repression when I most challenged its exercise. I think I deserved strong reproof. But when have we our deserts? I merited severity. He looked indulgence. To my very self I seemed imperious and unreasonable, for I forbade Justine Marie my door and roof. He smiled, betraying delight, warm, jealous and haughty. I knew not till now that my nature had such a mood. He gathered me near his heart. I was full of faults. He took them and me all home. For the moment of utmost mutiny, he reserved the one deep spell of peace. These words caressed my ear. Lucy, take my love. One day, share my life. Be my dearest, first on earth. We walked back to the roof set by moonlight, such moonlight as fell on Eden, shining through the shades of the great garden, and haply gilding a path glorious for a step divine, a presence nameless. Once in their lives, some men and women go back to these first fresh days of our great sire and mother, taste that grand morning's dew, bathe in its sunrise. In the course of the walk, I was told how Justine Marie Sauveur had always been regarded with the affection proper to her daughter, how, with Monsieur Paul's consent, she had been affianced for months to one Heinrich Müller, a wealthy young German merchant, and was to be married in the course of a year. Some of Monsieur Emmanuel's relations and connections would, indeed, it seems, have liked him to marry her, with a view to securing her fortune in the family. But to himself the scheme was repugnant, and the idea totally inadmissible. We reached Madame Beck's door. Jean-Baptiste's clock told nine. At this hour, in this house, eighteen months since, had this man at my side bent before me, looked into my face and eyes, and arbitered my destiny. This very evening he had again stooped, gazed and decreed. How different the look, how far otherwise the fate. He deemed me born under his star. He seemed to have spread over me its beam like a banner. Once, unknown and unloved, I held him harsh and strange. The low stature, the wiry make, the angles, the darkness, the manner displeased me. Now, penetrated with his influence and living by his affection, having his worth by intellect and his goodness by heart, I preferred him before all humanity. We parted. He gave me his pledge and then his farewell. We parted. 
The next day, he sailed. End of section 73. Recording by Leanne Fortune. Section 74 of Villette by Charlotte Bronte. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Leanne Fortune. Section 74. Man cannot prophesy. Love is no oracle. Here sometimes imagines a vain thing. Those years of absence? How had I sickened over their anticipation? The woe they must bring seemed certain as death. I knew the nature of their course. I never had doubt how it would harrow as it went. The juggernaut on his car towered there a grim load. Seeing him draw nigh, burying his broad wheels in the oppressed soil, I, the prostrate votary, felt beforehand the annihilating crunch. Strange to say, strange yet true, and owning many parallels in life's experience, that anticipatory crunch proved all, yes, nearly all the torture. The great juggernaut, in his great chariot, drew on lofty, loud and sullen. He passed quietly, like a shadow sweeping the sky at noon. Nothing but a chilling dimness was seen or felt. I looked up. Chariot and demon charioteer were gone by. The votary still lived. Monsieur Emmanuel was away three years. Reader, they were the three happiest years of my life. Do you scout the paradox? Listen, I commenced my school. I worked. I worked hard. I deemed myself the steward of his property and determined, God willing, to render a good account. Pupils came, burghers at first, a higher class ere long. About the middle of the second year, an unexpected chance threw into my hands an additional hundred pounds. One day I received from England a letter containing that sum. It came from Mr. Marchmont, the cousin and heir of my dear and dead mistress. He was just recovering from a dangerous illness. The money was a peace offering to his conscience, reproaching him in the matter of, I know not what, papers or memoranda found after his kinswoman's death, naming or recommending Lucy Snow. Mrs. Barrett had given him my address. How far his conscience had been sinned against, I never inquired. I asked no questions, but took the cash and made it useful. With this hundred pounds, I ventured to take the house adjoining mine. I would not leave that which Monsieur Paul had chosen, in which he had left, and where he expected again to find me. My externet became a pensionat. That also prospered. The secret of my success did not lie so much in myself, in any endowment, any power of mine, as in a new state of circumstances, a wonderfully changed life, a relieved heart. The spring which moved my energies lay far away beyond seas, in an Indian isle. At parting I had been left a legacy, such a thought for the present, such a hope for the future, such a motive for a persevering, a laborious, an enterprising, a patient and a brave course. I could not flag. Few things shook me now. Few things had importance to vex, intimidate or depress me. Most things pleased. Mere trifles had a charm. Do not think that this genial flame sustained itself. 
or lived wholly on a bequeathed hope or a parting promise. The generous provider supplied bounteous fuel. I was spared all chill, all stint. I was not suffered to fear penury. I was not tried with suspense. By every vessel he wrote, he wrote as he gave and as he loved, in full-handed, full-hearted plenitude. He wrote because he liked to write. He did not abridge because he cared not to abridge. He sat down, he took pen and paper, because he loved Lucy and had much to say to her, because he was faithful and thoughtful, because he was tender and true. There was no sham and no cheat and no hollow unreal in him. Apology never dropped her slippery oil on his lips, never proffered by his pen her coward feints and paltry nullities. He would give neither a stone nor an excuse, neither a scorpion nor a disappointment. His letters were real food that nourished, living water that refreshed. And was I grateful? God knows. I believe that scarce a living being, so remembered, so sustained, dealt with in kind so constant, honourable and noble, could be otherwise than grateful to the death. Adherent to his own religion, in him was not the stuff of which is made the facile apostate. He freely left me my pure faith. He did not tease nor tempt, he said. Remain a Protestant, my little English Puritan. I love Protestantism in you. I own its severe charm. There is something in its ritual I cannot receive myself, but it is the sole creed for Lucy. All Rome could not put into him bigotry, nor the propaganda itself make him a real Jesuit. He was born honest and not false, artless and not cunning, a free man and not a slave. His tenderness had rendered him ductile in a priest's hands. His affection, his devotedness, his sincere pious enthusiasm blinded his kind eyes sometimes, made him abandon justice to himself to do the work of craft and serve the ends of selfishness. But these are faults so rare to find, so costly to their owner to indulge, we scarce know whether they will not one day be reckoned amongst the jewels. And now the three years are past. Monsieur Emmanuel's return is fixed. It is autumn. He is to be with me ere the mists of November come. My school flourishes. My house is ready. I have made him a little library filled its shelves with the books he left in my care. I have cultivated out of love for him, I was naturally no florist, the plants he preferred, and some of them are yet in bloom. I thought I loved him when he went away. I love him now in another degree. He is more my own. The sun passes the equinox, the days shorten, the leaves grow sere, but he is coming. Frosts appear at night, November has sent his fogs in advance. The wind takes its autumn moan, but he is coming. The skies hang full and dark. A rack sails from the west. The clouds cast themselves into strange forms, arches and broad radiations. There rise resplendent mornings, glorious, royal, purple as monarch in his state. The heavens are one flame. So wild are they, they rival battle at its thickest. So bloody, they shame victory in her pride. I know some signs of the sky. I have noted them ever since childhood. 
God watch that sail, oh guard it. The wind shifts to the west. Peace, peace, Banshee, keening at every window. It will rise, it will swell, it shrieks out long. Wander as I may through the house this night, I cannot lull the blast. The advancing hours make it strong. By midnight, all sleepless watchers hear and fear a wild southwest storm. That storm roared frenzied for seven days. It did not cease till the Atlantic was strewn with wrecks. It did not lull till the deeps had gorged their full of sustenance. Not till the destroying angel of tempest had achieved his perfect work would he fold the wings whose waft was thunder, the tremor of whose plumes was storm. Peace be still, oh, a thousand weepers, praying in agony on waiting shores, listened for that voice, but it was not uttered, not uttered till, when the hush came, some could not feel it, till, when the sun returned, his light was night to some. Here pause, pause at once, there is enough said, trouble no quiet, kind heart, leave sunny imagination's hope, let it be theirs to conceive the delight of joy, born again fresh out of great terror, the rapture of rescue from peril, the wondrous reprieve from dread, the fruition of return. Let them picture union and a happy succeeding life. Madame Beck prospered all the days of her life, so did Pear Silas. Madame Walravens fulfilled her ninetieth year before she died. Farewell. End of section 74 Recording by Leanne Fortune, South Africa End of Villette by Charlotte Bronte Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.